This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 40. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 40 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. This is a bumper edition and I'm really excited about sharing this conversation with you. My guest, Miles Irving, is one of the foremost professional foragers in the UK. He's the author of The Forager Handbook and founder and director of Forager Limited. He's also the host of the World Wild Podcast. Miles's interest in foraging goes back to his childhood, but a chance conversation led him to turning this interest into a career. And we go into this in a lot more detail in the podcast. Miles was able to start supplying restaurants with forage plants, and this quickly expanded, ultimately leading to him supplying well-known chefs and restaurants such as Jamie Oliver, Mark Hicks, Heston Blumenthal and The Ivy. Forage Limited has expanded since to source nearly 500 wild ingredients for the restaurant trade, and Miles has grown to be one of the most respected professional foragers. Miles continues to push the boundaries of wild food and advocates the reintroduction of forage foods into regular diets. His foraging manifesto is well worth reading, and I'll link to this in the show notes at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 40, podcast 40, along with all the other links and additional materials that we mention in this podcast. It's a really interesting conversation. I'm really happy to be sharing this with you. Please take to your seats and get comfortable. It is a long one. Our conversation is wide ranging and we get into the weeds, both literally and figuratively. I'm really very happy to be sharing this conversation with Miles with you. Please enjoy this conversation with Miles Irving. Miles, hello. hello. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, Excellent. it's a bright, sunny day down here. I don't know how it is for you, but yeah, that's quite cheerful. Bright and sunny as well, bright and sunny. So, uh, yeah, no, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. I had you on a list of people to contact for quite some time, so it's, it, you know, it's quite sort of serendipitous that we've uh, made this connection and that we yeah. can have this conversation, and I think it's it's going to be really interesting, actually. Um well, thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So you're down in Kent today, is that right? Yeah, we're yeah. at our base of operations um, in Chartham, just outside Canterbury. Uh-huh. Nice yeah. part of the world. It's absolutely gorgeous, I have to say. There's a um, few places I'd rather be. Excellent. Yeah. Good, good. And you're up in the rafters as we speak. I'm up in our attic space. Um, our, our business premises has got quite an interesting history. It used to be a recording studio until we um, took it over. Um, and, yeah, so this used to, when we moved in, it still had quite a lot of kind of recording gear and great big cables and all sorts of stuff. Downstairs, we've still got the old vocal booth, the old vocal recording booth, and we use that as a drying room. The old engineer's room is a is a walk-in fridge. It's, yeah, it's just kind of fun, uh, the heritage of this building. But yeah, I'm up in the attic. And, and that's where we keep all of our dried spices and dried seaweeds and 
things like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like a real treasure trove, a real treasure trove. Um, I, th- I think it'd be worthwhile, Miles, you, you have this business, uh, Forager, um, mm. and I know you uh, primarily, or I, I came to know you primarily through your book, um, which we can talk about, but also I, I knew that you supplied some restaurants such as Hicks. Um, and I don't, I don't really know how I knew that, but it was just some connection in my mind. Um, but I right. think it'd be really interesting, both for me actually, and for the listeners to just tell us a little bit about your backstory, how you came to where you are today. Mm. And we can, we can maybe, you know, go off on tangents from that, or we can then use that as a jumping off point for the, for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, we'll just see where we go. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, well, right back to the beginning of my foraging story is probably uh, a walk in the woods that I had with my grandfather when I was six. We'd just moved out from, from Birmingham to Suffolk, where my grandparents were, um, and we stayed with them for a few weeks. And so one morning, my granddad just took me out mushroom picking, and I believe he told me that's what we were doing. Um and I found that quite an intriguing idea. And so, yeah, we found a few species of mushrooms. And, yeah, the, f- the first one was a parasol mushroom, which um, I guess some of, some of the listeners will be familiar with. But if you're not, it can grow as big as a dinner plate. Um, and I, I remember seeing it from a distance, and it, it, it did look like just like a like a plate or something hovering in the air because you couldn't couldn't see the stalk from a distance. But that's the thing that we honed in on. My grandfather walked straight out to that and said, this, this is the first one. It's a parasol mushroom. We're going to pick that and eat it. And then we went in and um, as I, I can, yeah, I can only recall two other, I think that was it. I think it was just the three. Um, and one of them was um, a wood bluet. Mm-hmm. Which again is quite spectacular to look at, isn't it? With the with the um, that sort of mauve colour, and really quite an an interesting and strong smell to it as well. So I mean, this is I just I just remember this being a very um, fascinating thing. I mean, I, I think anyone finds mushrooms fascinating when they um, go out and and discover them for the first time. But just for a, a, a small child, I think it was particularly sort of wowing to especially find two that were so spectacular like that and then the third one again was amazing to look at was a aniseed clitocybe hmm. which for those you don't know is kind of turquoise color um and uh, smells strongly of aniseed so that was our little cluster of mushrooms which we took back to the house and and ate and um yeah it just got me uh I was completely hooked on the idea of getting out and finding mushrooms after that. Just the concept of there being food that that you could just go out and gather, and that most people didn't know about it. It was I think that was part of what appealed to me. Mm. I've often said it felt like a a treasure hunt, but there was this idea that it was a treasure hunt for those in the know. You know, like that that you could know about this, and everybody else would just be walking past oblivious. You know, yeah. that yeah. I think that that's that's probably a big part of what kind of struck my imagination there yeah. and was your granddad was he um was he quite into his fungi or was it just the fact that he lived in the 
countryside because I remember you know when I was growing up there were a few older guys around you know in the village in the local market town who just seemed to know you know blue yeah. bluets and parasol mushrooms yeah. and, and puffballs and things and they it just seemed to be part you know they weren't particularly hardcore foragers they were just guys who'd grown up in the countryside they lived in the countryside all their lives and it was just stuff that yeah they knew yeah well, no, my granddad wasn't one of those. I mean, there was there was some good old country boys around, not but I'm not aware that any of those had uh, that kind of knowledge, that that sort of other kind of country law knowledge. But no, my granddad, um, he was just interested in food. He worked for the uh, what was called MAF back then, the Ministry of Agriculture, Farming and Fisheries, I believe. Um, I think that's probably where his interest lay. You know, he'd, he'd gone and done projects in different parts of the world around food supplies. So I think he had just stumbled across a book about edible fungi and and went from there. He just thought, well, I'll, I'll go and find out if there's any of this stuff in my vicinity. So it was more that kind of middle-class inquiry mm. uh, point of contact there rather than anything that had been handed down. Um yeah, and, and he had fairly limited knowledge. He, he didn't know any of the the Belites, for example. I, I found one on his on his property and uh, brought it back. He said, no, I don't know that one. I think he knew Judas's, and, and he showed me those, but those we didn't take back and cook. He, they, I think he thought they were a bit too, a bit too strange. But he said, apparently you can eat them. I remember seeing him prodding them in the kind of slightly distasteful way, you know, like... <laughs> well, they are quite chewy raw, aren't yeah. they? So. Um, yeah. But I think there's more there's more of a tradition of using them in Asian cooking than there doesn't seem to be a huge tradition of cooking them over here. It seems. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, that's a funny one. Did did, did you know that they have? I, I went to this medicinal mushrooms conference a little while ago and learned tons of stuff. And one of the things I learned there was that they actually um, protect you against radiation. I didn't know that actually. No. Yeah, they did some study on rats, and and I'm mean, a bit mean as most studies on rats are, but. They fed these rats uh, radioactive stuff, and some of the rats got some judicia with their radioactive stuff, and um, all of the ones that didn't have judicia with their radioactive stuff died, and only one out of ten of the the, the ones that had the judicia died. The rest of them were fine. Um, so that's amazing. That is interesting. Yeah. There's a lot we don't know yet, isn't there? Well, that seems to be a, a bit of a cold face of um, of research and, and and knowledge at the moment. The medicinal mushrooms thing. Apparently, there's there's a lot of money going into uh, analysing and a lot of people working on it. So, I mean, I find that extraordinary. I get the impression, and I'm not by any means uh, authoritative on this subject. As I say, I just just been dipping into it recently, but I get the impression that there's a real synergy between the traditional knowledge. And the unfolding of new new knowledge. People are discovering um, applications for some of these medicinal fungi, which don't necessarily crop up in the traditional uses. And and for me, that is, um, you know, that that sort of metaphor of coalface there. That that's, I feel like we're there, um, kind of now, in in um, in a way that it hasn't ever happened before. What I mean is that the people exploring the possibilities of wild resources and talking to each other. You know, I mean, I, I, as I was saying before we started recording, I'm a bit of a technophobe in a lot of ways. I hate and detest technology and the way that it's reshaped 
and reformed modern life to the detriment. But I have to say this capacity for mass communication and for communication over distance like we're doing now and being able to disseminate ideas through mediums like this podcast, you know, I think that is very, very exciting because little little pockets of knowledge in obscure corners are suddenly going global Indeed. because we can all talk to each other. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. So there's that community, almost like a tribe of people that can connect with each other in a way that we couldn't before. And also we can, there's no gatekeepers in terms of us getting information out to people. So for example, I mean, you've, you've published a book, you need to get a publishing deal and somebody to, you know, print it for you and publish it and then it needs to be distributed yeah. and you're reliant on those people permitting you to put the information that you have out to the people who might want to consume it whereas now with this podcast it'll go out you know in a couple of weeks time it's all on my platform you've got a podcast as well and we can talk about that and we can you know even though it's a niche interest for a lot of people you know a lot of people might not be interested in these areas yet or in as much detail as we and our listeners might be but we can speak directly and we don't have to go via the BBC or any other platform yeah. to, to get it there, which I think is wonderful. I th yeah, I think I think it is. Although I've already, while you're talking, thought, mm, but what about, yeah, because um, on the other hand, though, there's just every man and his dog can start up a YouTube channel and start up a foraging business, teaching foraging and and, and, and start putting themselves out there as, um, as an authority on it. And... <clears throat> I am a bit concerned about that. I mean, I had I had somebody pop around um, yesterday, and I, I'm not going to go into the details because it, it may turn out that this is really solid information that's backed up. But the point is, he couldn't back it up. He came around and told me about there's a there's a well, I'll just say a thing. There's something that you can smoke that it it's 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 aromatic, and you can use it to smoke foods and, and this and that. And I said, where did you get that from? He told me about somebody's YouTube channel, which without naming that person, I, I would have a slight reservation about taking their stuff as being authoritative. And on that basis, he was going to start cooking and serving it up to the public. And mm. I said, I said, did you, did you explore that any further? He said, no, it was on blah, 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 blah. You know, somebody that teaches wild food and has got loads of videos. I said, well, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's true. Right. And the poor guy, he was, he was, obviously a bit embarrassing somewhere it's so hard to find out i said yeah but can i just say you need to find out i've never heard of that it could be true it could be safe but it, there could be toxins in that thing yeah. and, and without there being some traditional use some something to show that, that and, and there might be for all i know there is but the point is he didn't know that and the guy presenting the information didn't support it with any any uh um any stuff so yeah i guess I am slightly concerned about that side of things. I guess it, it, it'll eventually all come out in the wash, but I think it's something we need to think about that um, it is possible to seem like you're the guy that knows. Um, and um, unfortunately, people trust what you say. Um, yeah, I think there's two There's two issues and they're interlinked. One is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect. No. Where it basically... Um, it's sort of linked to you not knowing what you don't know. So when you don't know ah. very, when you don't know very much, you're quite confident about what you know, and you tend to be overconfident with ah. what, what you know and how you present it. And then when you learn more, you realise actually there's <laughs> so much to learn here. Even though you actually know more than you did, you tend to lose confidence in what you know. 
And so you tend to find that the more knowledgeable people tend to be a little bit quieter about what they know and the less knowledgeable people tend to be quite noisy about what they know. Um, and it often isn't particularly well researched. And, and I guess it goes back to the old empty vessels make most noise um, yeah. thing as well. I, th I don't think it's a new concept, but I think you're right that we now have, because we have these platforms, people can either present themselves as an authority, but equally, to be fair to some people, they don't always present themselves as, as authorities, but um, people see it on a screen yeah. um, and they they translate it as being authoritative. Um, and I find actually more so with older people um, because we grew up, and I'm sort of, we, I'm not that old, I'm in my mid-40s, but, you know, so my generation and maybe the, you know, my parents' generation, we grew up, what the only screens that we watched were television and you know you're watching mm. david attenborough or or, or whatever and it, it tends to be authoritative so you there's that automatic assumption right. that what you're watching on a screen is well researched it's fact checked it's you know it, it's honest and um you know so i've i've had some really interesting conversations with people in their 60s and 70s who've you know been watching some random conspiracy theory video on youtube going well you know this is happening and it's like you don't somebody's just made that video and put it on youtube it's yeah not, you know and and i think it's that that as well that people just oh dear yeah people just read it as authority even if people even if people are just maybe documenting what they're doing and sharing like or, you know blogging it basically in a video form and i but i think it's incumbent on people particularly when it gets down to wild foods and medicines and anything people might consume to be clear about where they're coming from are they documenting their own journey are they you know what's their pedigree what's their background and i think for all of us as well i'd agree with you that you know i i i, I go to great lengths to check anything before i uh, before i teach it to people you know mm. and i i don't you know if somebody tells me that this plant used to be used for something i'll go and dig out all my books search i mean again google's fantastic google scholar there's plenty there's lots of yeah there's lots of um scientific papers online you know in terms of you know phytochemistry and things and you can actually go exactly quite yeah. a lot of you can you can get a lot of information but you have to do the work and i think it's it's very important you're right that you don't just take something on face value because otherwise, you, you you just it's just this Chinese whispers thing, isn't it? Where you just get this pub knowledge that's shared around that actually isn't, it's yeah. not it's not complete or it's not um, valid. I don't know about you. I'll ask you this question: Do you find that you keep seeing old stuff that kind of resurfaces, that's maybe been debunked or that we've moved on from? People dig out old books and kind of go, oh, I've re I've I've re I've re found some old knowledge here. I'm going to share it out with the world again. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, not really. And I'll tell you why. It's just because I, I spend almost no time on the internet. So, <laughs> um, yeah. I wasn't um, talking internet specifically. I know I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about things like, oh, you know, in Eastern European peasants used to make tea out of ragwort and, you know, stuff like this. And it's like, yeah, right. but it's full of alkaloids. You don't want to be doing that. And, um. Yeah, I don't know. It just there seems to be this sort of recirculation of stuff that's not well researched. Anyway, yeah, uh, Oliver Rackham calls that a bibliographic echo. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. Quite good. Yes. You repeat it without going back to check the uh, the. Um, I mean, I think there's some fun ones like that. Like, uh, 
I'm always telling the story about Meadowsweet. Do you, do, do you know that one? How Meadowsweet is not a correct name that, that got changed by a, a scribe writing it down wrong? No, I don't know that part. Okay, Sorry, so, me. so, yeah. so Meadowsweet used to be Mead Sweet. It was yes. used to flavor mead. Yes. And someone just wrote it down wrong. Uh, and it, mm-hmm. it became Meadowsweet, and mm-hmm. it doesn't grow in meadows. You think, why is it called Meadowsweet? And it's mm-hmm. simply that. Yeah. So I think, I think those kind, those kind of um, writing it down and copying it things are quite fun. There's another one like that. There's a, there's a, there's a duck called a velvet scoter. Right. Um, it's a black duck, and you might see it on the sea sometimes um, in the winter. But anyway, that used to be called a velvet sutter because it's black. <laughs> right. <laughs> But somebody misread it in a manuscript and was writing the new book about ducks and called it um, a velvet scoter. And that book sold more copies than the previous ones. So that became the authoritative name, name. Velvet Scoter. I think it's a smashing name. Yeah. Scoter. It's better than a sitter. Yeah. But but it doesn't mean anything. No. (laughs) It's just half half an O got missed out and... You've got a C instead of an O. Yeah. No, but, I, I did know about the mead with Meadowsweet. I, 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 had, I thought it was just one of those things that had changed over time, you know, with people, you know, contracting the way they said it or something. But I hadn't realised it was somebody who'd actually transcribed it incorrectly. So that's interesting. Well, actually, to, to be honest, I could have made that bit up, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. Anyway, it's, it's, it's equally funny. Well, you know, yeah, it is. It is. But you know, the, uh, the other one I, I wonder about as well is um, bird cherry and wild cherry and the Latin names for them. Somebody just got those the wrong way around at some point. Because you got Prunus avium and Prunus padus. Ah. And it's like, surely bird cherry should be Prunus avium. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that sounds like another scribe has got his Could be stuff muddled up. Some monk somewhere writing, getting his Latin wrong. <laughs> I've got an ant crawling across my screen. Mm. Just absolutely no idea what it's doing up here. Don't let it make a nest in your machine. It's a tiny <laughs> ant, yeah. I think I think I'm just gonna have to eat it. Mm. Let have his misery because he's not, he's not, you know, he's not gonna. Oh, he, he heard me say that. He's jumped. <laughs> it's gone. Oh no, there he is. Sorry. Mm. Nice and lemony. Nice and lemony. That's, yeah. That acid. Yes, good stuff. So, when did you start eating ants? Was that your grandfather as well, or was that later? No, I can't tell you the number of people that sit, you know, because we talk about that and do it on wild food walks and so on, that say, yeah, I used to do that as a kid. Mm. And I think, oh, missed a trick there. <laughs> you know, I was really up for eating wild foods, but it never occurred to me to eat an ant, but no. loads of people seem to. Um, when? Yeah, I actually can't remember, but um, we – no, I can remember. It was, it was probably – it was before the first MAD symposium because – um, yeah, I, so what? I just don't know where the idea came from, though. I don't know. I don't know what meant. What made me go mm. out and start eating ants? Maybe we just. Were, I was just thinking generally insects, and this is a small one. It can't be that bad, or something. Mm. But um, well, lots of people know that they taste quite nice. So. Yeah, I, I, perhaps knowledge. I'd read about it. I can, I can often not really remember what where an idea started, but but anyway, I I got on this train of thought that a lot of people get on when you have ants, which taste of something like that one was just lemony, but a lot of ants do have aromatic compounds and, and other flavor compounds in them. And I found these ants that tasted of mint. Really? And it, and it, 
Yeah, and there's there's quite a few different species that, that taste of mint. Um, well, all the ones I've found are red ants. So quite quite a few of the red ants taste of mint. Um, but the thing is, it was growing near some water mint. So I made the wrong assumption that this ant tastes like mint because it eats it eats mint. But it's not the case. It's um, it turns out it's actually the uh, pheromones when, when they have these flavor compounds in it. It's because they're leaving um, signal trails with the with with those compounds to answer the same species. So that's how they find their way backwards and forwards and follow each other and find yeah. their way to food resources and things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and we've got some in our garden. They're they're called orange carpenter ants and um, and they taste like coriander. <laughs> <laughs> Quite extraordinary. It is, yeah. it is extraordinary. Yeah. 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 So, um, um, I'm I'm happy to go off on tangents, but. For the benefit, yeah, we are doing that rather, aren't we? But that's all right for the benefit of the <laughs> listeners. So you you got you, your grandfather introduced you to finding some mm. mushrooms. Um, yeah. So where, where did that go next? Did you kind of get into more that mushrooms. more more mushrooms? Yeah. yeah, more mushrooms and and just just a gradually expanding repertoire. Um, I mean, just really slow and steady. Just over the years, gradually discovered new ones. I think the next one after that was probably the giant puffball. My dad was quite into it as well, so we, you know, if we went out for a walk, either one of us might spot a mushroom and we'd be keen to cook it when we got back. And um, cautionary tale from my uncle, who also lived on my granddad's land for a bit in a in a caravan. So he got the foraging bug a bit, but he was a bit careless, and and he ate an ivory clitosibe, which can kill you apparently, but that got mixed up with his fairy ring. There's this fairy ring mushroom that, that has this similar one, and and um, so that was there's a good lesson to have. Yeah, it, it I was sick I, for I, days with that one. I, I don't know the Clytosibes that well, but Clytosibe D. albata is one of the really poisonous ones, isn't it? I think that's the ivory one. Is yeah. it? Is that is that the one? Is yeah. it right? Okay. Mm. So yeah. Anyway, so learnt a few more good ones. Became more conscious of the fact that there was some danger out there that you, you couldn't just willy nilly fry up anything um and pick loads of berries you know we, we always used to go out as a family and pick blackberries as i know a lot of people do and we'd always pick uh wild plums and things but no plants so um you know no leafy greens or anything like that so i had my first um attempt at uh foraging and eating leafy greens when i was about 16 uh, a friend of mine who's a bit older she had a she had a um a, a foraging book and it had a recipe for fat hen in it she said well i know where to get some fat hen so we got that cooked it but the real point of this story is that it wasn't a very good recipe <laughs> that cost me about another 15 16 years of um not foraging plants because i just thought well mushrooms taste amazing blackberries taste amazing the wild fruit taste, this just doesn't taste very good mm. um and i think fat hen is a great wild vegetable now um so the root into yeah, the, wild... the the oryx and and the you know good, good King Henry and the atriplex and the oryx and they're all they're all good, aren't they? They're all tasty. They're delicious. Yeah. Um, so this, I mean, this must have been a really bad recipe. Um, <laughs> or we did it badly, but I'm blaming the recipe. Because yeah, I think it's an important point. Because what got me into the plants eventually was good recipes. You know, for years I was conscious of the fact that there were lots of edible plants out there, and it was irritating the hell out of me because I thought, well, I bet you some of them are really good. Mm. 
but I was also conscious of the fact that some of them were deadly, especially the umbellifers. You know, I, I knew there were some edible ones and I knew there were some deadly ones. Mm-hmm. And I used to eye them up every year, coming up and going down in the hedgerows, thinking... Yeah, there's, lo- there's lots of them, isn't yeah. there? There's lots of them. Yeah. And and they're there in these visible places, you know, so I'm going past them all the time thinking, I know some of these could be great and I know some of these could be really dodgy. So, and... and, and um, and I, I was just being lazy, really. I, I already knew identifying mushrooms is pretty hard. You know, you come back from the forest or you take the book with you. Either way, you know, and if you're, if you're trying to look at everything you find, there's always five or six outliers that you give up. You just think, okay, I really don't know what that is. I've gone through the book seven times and I just don't know which one it is, you know. So, and I was thinking, okay, so now we're going to start this whole other thing of trying to identify plants. I actually think plants are a lot easier having having learned them. But um, anyway, I'd, I'd agree with you on that. Yeah. yeah, they're less varied as well. Like it, it, an individual species of fung- you, fungus yeah. can be really very different from the next. Whereas plants tend there is some variety, of course, but they tend to be more uniform in their yeah. character. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. It is yeah. it is those sort of you know like mushrooms being more or less damp when the photograph was taken that you're looking at and all of that can make all the difference but yeah so eventually i did it it did it did irritate me to the point where i thought i'm gonna do this um and i just met ali who's now my wife and the the main thing we used to do was go out and explore all these amazing bits of the kent countryside that she knew and i said well why, why don't we take a wildflower book and start learning the plants which she was up for that Shortly after that, she bought me for my birthday, um, Antonio Carluccio's Carluccio Goes Wild. And that really was the milestone for me. I mean, I suppose partly it broke it down into the bite-sized chunks. There were, there, there, there were only um, about 30 plants in that book, mm-hmm. which I definitely haven't followed the wisdom of that because it's about 300 in mine, which is <laughs> too much for a beginner. It's probably a bit intimidating. Um, but for us, it was perfect and, and recipe. So we just went on a quest one after the other, finding all the plants in that book and cooking them up. And and, and the key was every single one of those recipes was work, worked and was stunningly delicious whilst also being really easy to produce. So um, it took me years to notice that, looking back on my own story, if you see what I mean, that, that that's what opened the door for me. Because mm. another crap fat hen recipe probably would have done it. <laughs> so, right, that's it, I'm finished with plant, you know. But, but Carluccio's wild garlic soup and 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 the the salads the nettle gnocchi you know all of these things that we did and key part of that was that it was very much um like a community sort of thing we we always invited people around when we discovered our latest plant we said okay come around saturday night and you know we might have a wild goose as well we were exploring that side of things and people were just absolutely wowed by it we were wowed by it so they were they didn't they didn't need much convincing to trust you then they were they weren't suspicious at all well i don't know i mean these are all kind of people that are quite into food and right. quite alternative minded yeah or maybe some of them are a bit more arty they that seems to appeal to artists this sort of thing somehow yeah. but you know the point the the, the point was this this collective experience of, of a real sense of adventure a sense of wonder a sense of we're tapping into something with real kind of history and heritage here mm-hmm. and um it, it was it was it was very magical experience and and would have been probably different if it had just been us the fact that it was celebrated with friends and so on really did um open things up so the next 
thing that happened that's important to this story is just how I got into um, doing this for a living. And it's quite simply that, that we mentioned picking wild garlic at a local restaurant that had opened. And the chef there, well, the, the, the waiter said the chef would love to hear about that. Um, and he came out and and just basically hassled me <laughs> to, to, to bring in some wild garlic. And then when I did that, he hassled me to bring other things. And then when I didn't pop in uh, for a few weeks, he pounced on me when I came here. Where have you been? You, you, I really just, please, can you tell me what else you can do? And, and um, it was really him that drove us to um, explore the idea that, well, I mean, he j- speeded up the journey of discovery because mm. I said, well, we've got this one and that one. I suppose it could, but, I, I, you know, like, for example, Lady Smog. I said, look, I don't think this tastes very nice, but, you know, I can get you some. Do you it's not? It's be edible. I didn't when I first tasted it. No, I thought I thought it was horrible. Do you like mustard generally? I, I do like mustard, but Lady Smog has got a kind of medicinal twist to it as well, hasn't it? And And, I mean, look, the thing, the thing is – a chef opened this up to me years later as to what, what the issue was. I mean, great. If people like this stuff, just standing there eating it naked in a field, I mean the plant, not the person, um, <laughs> just just without any embellishment. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, not there's anything wrong with that. Nothing yeah. wrong with tasting it naked in a field. Go ahead. But, um, yeah, um, there just might be some distraction. Anyway. Yes. Um, so let's just focus on the plant. So <laughs> You're already distracted, are, tasting, I can tell. <laughs> tasting this naked plant. <laughs> right. Um, so this, this chef opened it up to me because, you, you know, I've taken a lot of people on walks and, and taken samples up to chefs and they munch on something and they go, oh, I don't know about that one. And I'm going, no, chef, you see, because blah, 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 blah. Put it with this. goes nice with a smoke deal, whatever, you know. But, but this chef opened it up to me. He said, look, there's only two things in the world. There's ingredients and apples. <laughs> I went, okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Right. Where was this guy from? Oh, it's, his name's Jock Sonfrillo. He's from, he's from Glasgow, but he works in um, somewhere in Australia, South Australia, right. uh, Adelaide. That's it. Um, so, you know, and he's done a lot of experimenting with the native ingredients out there. So, I mean, the obvious point is you don't need to do anything to an apple. You just munch it, right? And yeah. and whereas an ingredient needs context, process, you need to think about how much. Don't overdo it. Can you overdo an apple? No. Does it need any process? No. So and that's what opened up to me. And that, so that's what I was experiencing. I was being challenged by, 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 by an ingredient expecting it to be an apple. I was expecting to be able to just munch on mm-hmm. Lady Smock and, and – and just munch on Lady Smock and find that good, you know. Um, whereas what the, what working with chefs did was they would take that ingredient and say, oh, okay. So they've got this whole pantheon of, you know, recipe combinations and, you know, mustard goes with beetroot or mustard or wasabi goes with, you know, all of that. Yeah. And they'd come up with these things. And it's, it's mostly, if it's a strong flavor, you balance it with another strong flavor. But anyway, that's the whole world that we were – inducted into when we when we started dealing with chefs that here we've got the the raw ingredient we've got the basic stuff and here are these guys that are like alchemists that can um now i mean i shouldn't i shouldn't say that too much because the, the, i mean the other thing so those 
those are the guys that really engaged with us in the early days. So I, I had a question about that, yeah. and it might come on to another question that I'd written down to ask you. So I'd, apologies if I'm kind of preempting what you're about to say. Um, but the guy who was in your local restaurant that hassled you about the wild wild garlic and then hassled you to bring other things, was yeah. he used to using wild foods, or was he was that new to him? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a really important question. So his name was Blaise Vasseur. So you can. You can tell from that he had he had uh, French French origins, and that's absolutely key to this story. Mm-hmm. So, what it was, he was he was chef in this place called the Good Shed in Canterbury, which is still open and and doing really well. And they were using stuff off the local produce market that's on the same site, and trying to use as much organic stuff, local stuff, seasonal stuff. But he knew there was a missing part to this, which was the wild food, and that's because coming from France and being a chef, he was familiar with a couple of guys. Uh, Mark Varar and uh, Michel Brun, both of whom in the 90s, I think it's broadly part of the Nouvelle Cuisine thing or something like that, they had made wild plants, uh, wild edible plants, absolutely central. Excuse me. Mm. Ah, I'm thinner of repeating on me there. Um, they had made... Is that, uh, an, is that ant pushed you over the edge? That ant, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so they they had made um, they were cooking a kind of food and thinking about the idea of terroir and taking it really a lot further than anybody had before. So beyond just you know the grapes growing in a region and the wine expressed in that region, um, and beyond traditional techniques of cooking potatoes and whatever else, they were saying, well, what if we went even deeper and looked at wild plants which aren't even necessarily um, part of the the uh, traditional French cooking, although some of them are, obviously, like dandelion and so on. And what if we try and create a cuisine that, that is sort of like deep terroir? And Michel Bra has a dish which I can never remember the name of. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing name, um, uh, evocative-sounding name, and, and I don't even know what it means in French. But But basically, that plate has... 60 different wild plants on it including flowers hmm. um and and i think it was a movable feast you know it was still the same plate if you did it different times of the year or even slightly different places as as long as it did that it had these incredible number of ingredients on the plate not just wild stuff i think there's other stuff there as well but but um and and mark Varard had a restaurant in a particular sort of alpine area of france and his big thing was, you know, if you come and eat in my restaurant, you are basically eating this landscape. It was just wonderful stuff. And and, and really the seed for places like Noma, who, who later on probably took these ideas further. Mm. But um, and for, so people, there you are. for people who don't know, Noma's in Copenhagen, isn't it? So Noma is a, a restaurant in Copenhagen that, that, that has really popularized the idea of, of um reinventing a cuisine based on the landscape you know so so they they took what was in many respects a bit dodgy you know like the danish food of that time um bacon bacon and (laughs) yeah i I don't know what was wrong with it actually but but apparently it wasn't really internationally very well recognized and and they certainly thought it needed reinventing um and they came up with this stuff with a lot of wild ingredients a lot of seasonal produce and 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 a lot of Japanese techniques and 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 things like that. Uh, so they've 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 been quite a key to the the whole story of wild foods becoming, well, frank frankly, fashionable. 
mm. within within that sort of area of high gastronomy. Because it's not a cheap place, is it? Oh no, it's it's eye wateringly expensive. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough that somebody took me there once a long time ago. Um, I can't have been open that long. I don't think it must. It was back in the mid two thousands. Um, yeah. Oh six, maybe. Oh seven. Oh six. Yeah. It was very good even then, and I know it's got better. I haven't been since then, but it, it it's yeah, it was exceptional. Amazing. It was exceptional. Yeah, yeah. yeah I definitely, I've had the, the best the best meal I've ever eaten was was definitely in 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 Noma. Um, but um, it's funny that the second best meal I've ever eaten was a, was with a, a chef who spent a lot of time with us called Tobin XL, and it was just for me and 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 four friends, and um, it contained fermented hogweed juice which is just one of the most exquisite ingredients but i really struggled to find what it goes with and tobin came up with this thing which is basically squid and i think there was one other ingredient and and this hogweed juice um yeah it was spectacular yeah Sounds it's just funny it's just like i mean not, not i mean tobin is a chef but 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 the context that's for me what what was um you know the idea that we've we've had a meal in what was voted the best restaurant in the world several years running that that was one high point but the other was this very sort of convivial thing with with friends where he just cooked it out of love for us and it was kind of cooked i mean he'd been working on some of these things but it, that was that was the context mm. and and i guess that's that's where i just feel like um we we still work with restaurants a lot, but but I feel like the thing that will eventually come through all of the wonderful techniques and and things that um, restaurants use and all of the approaches to ingredients and things. For me, it comes full circle in that more uh, convivial context. You know, I feel like the chefs are teaching us to to rediscover food heritage, ingredients, and and just how great and amazing food can be. But I just want to bring it all back home, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that that original experience that we had of eating with friends was what opened up the wild foods to me, and and we felt like we were connecting with people from the past that that, that, that weren't in kind of rarefied contexts like the king's palaces or whatever, um, uh, which maybe you know a Michelin star restaurant is somewhat the equivalent to that these days. Yes. Um, it's 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 not in that rarefied context, but it's 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 people that are sharing life and sharing food as a way of of uh, of, of that kind of bonding and that that yeah that, that context where everybody drops their guard and smiles and laughs and shares stories and and and, and I suppose that's 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 where I've ended up now. I just think it's hugely important the work that restaurants are doing and and we've we've we're really proud of playing a role in in introducing some of the ingredients that restaurants use um and making them you know they've been on the telly and become a better known and that sort of thing yeah i mean you 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 have worked with and do work with a, a lot of names that people would recognize um jamie oliver's 15 was one that i know that you that was supplied. our first london customer yeah that was yep. pretty exciting yep. we ambushed him when he came to kent we we uh he probably still doesn't know it this this day but my business partner at the time was running the uh, vegetable stall at this place called the good shed so he was able to do what he liked with it and we knew jamie oliver was coming down to discuss his school dinners project at the good shed with local suppliers and so on 
So we went out picking the day before and put 35 different species of wild mushroom all along one side of this stall. And it was a complete artifice, you know. It was <laughs> totally bogus. It was all to kind of wow Jamie Oliver and try and get his business. And it worked. You know, mm. we, he came along and he was just like a fly in a fly trap. He, yeah. Just gobsmacked to see all these mushrooms there. Mm-hmm. So we 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 uh, managed to get their business in 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 London back in 2004, I think that was. But anyway, yeah. So some of these, um, and funny enough, Heston Blumenthal is probably our best customer now, which is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from from his you know his thing isn't ultra seasonal. He's more about techniques and and um, yeah. I mean, he's quite into the historical thing, which I guess is a there's a there's a link there. Yeah. But anyway, and combining interesting flavors as well, isn't he? Oh no, he's an absolute genius yeah. for. For, for the uh, the flavor combination and, and 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 pulling things out of the past and mm. putting them in a modern context but but yeah we're dead chuffed i mean he buys a lot of uh dull seaweed from us and and um yeah they they um they're the only people that buy uh bladder rack from us actually they they make a broth from that i believe for a sauce um which i think um bladder rack which for those of you listening that don't know bladder rack's probably one of the most common seaweeds on the beach um and mostly crops up in a food context because people put oysters on it as a display huh, yeah. and nobody eats it. But it's incredibly delicious and has more antioxidants than any other seaweed. So huh. um, eat your um, bladder rack, boys and girls. And you get the umami effect as well. Umami is 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 <laughs> it's just because it's so chewy. You wouldn't you wouldn't mm. you wouldn't. But yeah, exactly. As soon as you start um, just simmering it for a while and let that flavour come out into the liquid, it's umami for mm. sure. Mm. so i i know we're jumping around here a little bit but the the other part of my earlier question about the the, the french chef in your local restaurant in, in yeah. canterbury so when you're working with the range of chefs that you work with whether it's you know jamie oliver or his team at 15 or heston blumenthal or mark hicks or any of these other people um are they using their sort of knowledge of flavors in general and then translating the wild food flavors? So you're taking stuff up to them and saying, what do you think of this? And they're thinking, well, it could go with this, this and this based on what they already know. Or is it, is it a very it's, much a case by case basis with it different ones? It's, yeah, it's some and some really. And I think we assumed for years that like that was part of the chef's repertoire and that therefore if, if, um, a chef wasn't using a particular ingredient, that's because they'd exhaustively tried all the possible permutations and decided that they actually didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a long time to realize that in a lot of cases, people were just far too busy to do that. Yeah. So the reason they weren't using it is because there was no easy point of reference. So the things we sell loads of, are like sea beet, which is basically chard, you know, chard being bred from the wild plant sea beet, and um, wild garlic, which is just like a big flat version of chives, you know, the things that have an easy um, wild cabbage or sea kale as well, they, you know, they have an easy point of reference. Is that for the leaves or for the roots, the sea kale, the leaves? Uh, well, I mean, it'd be amazing if you could could harvest the roots, but um, uh, that'd be uh, highly illegal, unfortunately, yeah. because you can't, you can't, um, actually, I mean, that's, it's an interesting one because... I suspect that harvesting part of the root of a plant would would uh, would be a quite a sustainable thing to do, mm. um, but we've we've yet to yet to explore that. The only time I've ever eaten sea kale root was where it's been uh, battered by the storm, right. and the 
on the Russo. Have you have, have you tasted it, Paul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Gordon Hillman, who who I worked with a little bit when I was working um, at Woodlaw with with Ray yeah. Mears, he had a theory that it was actually quite an important source of carbohydrates for people that were foraging along the coast at one point. Uh, it, well, was a, it was a theory, of course. It's, but, yeah. it's an interesting theory. I mean, the thing about sea kale um, is it really does look from the records. There's there's some stuff out there that says sea kale was the populations were decimated in the past. Now, by people digging it up, and so some people even suggest harvesting it, but that's nonsense. If you if you cut sea kale, it grows back, and there's absolutely no detriment to it. And the massive storms that happen on the south coast seem to just propagate the sea cow, right? That they, they, they produce root fragments from which plants grow and, and, and even the stems will produce more plants. But anyway, the, the point is I've had to look really right into the, the historical records around sea cow to kind of answer this um, suggestion that, uh, that over-harvesting in the past um, was detrimental. And what, what you find actually is that sea cow is massively more abundant now than it, than it was in the past. It does seem like this is a plant that's um, increasing. The only reason I say that is because I wonder whether we we had the populations of sea kale in the past um, that we have now. You look around now and you see an area like Dungeness that's just covered in the stuff and goes on for miles. Mm. But the suggestion is that that, that it's it's actually increased substantially, even in the last um, 20 or 30 years. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a great theory, though. I certainly think it's, it's, it is super delicious, the sea cow root, and, mm. and very substantial. Um, I mean, this is what betrays the lie about the, uh, the, the over-harvesting potentially destroying the plant, is, is the, uh, the sea cow roots are as thick as a man's arm, mm -hmm. up, to, up to three meters long, mm -hmm. and uh, each plant has four or five of them. So it hasn't just one little, little single tap root. Um, so, I mean, there's a massive store, storage of starch there. And the reason the plant has that is because it can then survive being completely buried under a um, couple of meters of shingle if there's a big storm. So then it's got enough it's got enough starch there to just push its way up and, and do fine. And in the meantime, it, it sits there and, and just, um, yeah, it's, it's always prepared for the worst, basically. But mm -hmm. that means... That means that if you think about how much weight under each plant there is, a mature plant with a, with a, with a root of that size, um, you can see that would be a lot of food for someone that, that was um, in the past harvesting it. And, and this thing that happens with storms, I mean, it's an interesting area, Paul, around, around root harvesting because on the one hand, you think, okay, if you dig a plant up, you've taken a whole lot with the root. But a lot of these plants that have good edible roots – will regenerate from root fragments mm -hmm. and and there's there's a there's at least one um that uh there's a there's a few of the uh campanula species of plants in that family which have declined precisely because nobody digs them up anymore because hmm. when there was a culture around using them there would be root fragments and after you'd finished digging you there'd be then 10 times 20 times 30 times as many plants small ones growing up next year um anyway we do go off on tangents. No, I think it's interesting though. So, Miles, sea kale's popular. Um, you mentioned um, sea beet as well and wild garlic. What other ones have proven to be very popular with restaurants? Uh, there's quite a demand for um, nettles, um, which is perhaps, yeah, less of an obvious... Yeah, yeah it's not... It's, 
not too unobvious, I guess. It's, it's a, you use it a bit like spinach. Um, but I guess there's a, there's a buzz around nettles that people find it exciting to put it on their menu. Mm. And then, um, I mean, wood sorrel. People go nuts for wood sorrel. <laughs> and they're asking for it all through the winter. We say, sorry, it's out of season. So we end up selling some of the... Um, the uh, other oxalis species so for, for those that don't know wood sorrel looks like clover and tastes like apples and lemons you yeah. know and, and then you can find a whole carpet of it in the woods but there's lots of plants in the same family um or the same genus called oxalis which have escaped from gardens so um and they seem to do better in the winter so we we, we, we substitute that and and just the uh, the wild sorrel and the sheep sorrel you know we get chefs saying what sorrels have you got for example, um, wild chervil, but that's an interesting one. It, so obviously links right to uh, cultivated French chervil, but it's also people generally use it a bit like parsley. But wild chervil's um, very similar to hemlock. Do you you mean what a lot of people so, would call cow parsley? Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. I always forget that we're so used to calling it wild chervil. No, it's cow fine. Parsley, it's fine. It's just exactly. Anthriscus um, sylvestris. That's correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whereas, whereas uh, French chervil is Anthriscus something else. So that's that's why we feel it's a it's a more valid name. But no, yeah. you're probably right because um, cow. Um, I mean, there's so many cows and hogs and pigs yeah. and, in in that family as well. Yeah, it gets very confusing. Yeah, of course, our hogweed is cow parsnip in America. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's deeply confusing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so that that's a that's a uh, an interesting one because you know obviously there's a deadly poisonous lookalike there. Um, so, you know, we've had quite a lot of people kind of move into this area, and 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 so now we have quite a lot of competitors and a lot of um, the uh, fruit and veg suppliers, um, su- supply and restaurants that have a, have a wild food offering, but most of them steer clear of wild chervil, um, <laughs> because yeah, it only takes one. There's mm. there's a there's a there's a restaurant somewhere in Southeast Asia. I forget where it was, but th- those guys there decided they'd do some foraging for themselves, but they didn't do their homework. And they um, they had a, a menu where you couldn't have any choice. You just, so everyone in the restaurant ate the same thing. And they put a deadly poisonous mushroom in, in the food and just killed everyone. Oh, is, uh, I was reading about that a while ago. Was it an Asian chef in, Aus- was he in Australia? Is, am, I, am I thinking of the same story? I, I thought it was in Asia, but it's a while since I read it. Yeah. Definitely, an it was Asian definitely chef. it was definitely an Asian chef. Yeah, I mean yeah. There, there could be more than one instance of that happening oh, as well, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. But yeah, but but obviously it's 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 wide open for it to happen. Yes, if people don't know what they're doing and and they start working with um with these kind of things and, and but people come to a restaurant assuming that everybody knows what they're doing, but anyway, I mean that's that's the end of your career, right? You don't say. We've learned from our mistake. No. We're opening a new place. Yeah, <laughs> just like no thanks, chef. You better go and find a new career. Because mm. oh dear, not as a yeah. mycologist either. No. No, not as a mycologist. It's <laughs> <laughs> a toxicologist, maybe. But yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, well, so I used to, I, interesting aside, tangent number yeah. seventy-three. Okay, I, I, <laughs> I used to work with a mycologist who never ate mushrooms in restaurants. Well, you can, you can see why. I yeah. mean, yeah, th- I mean, while we're on this subject, like there's there's a there's a well known uh, wholesaler in in uh, New Comic Garden, and they they had um, they had destroying angels sent down one day, <laughs> and it was only because the the guy in charge happened to check one of the boxes, 
which was going to go out in a box of mixed mushrooms. That that, that didn't that else. We'd have our very own uh, homegrown story of mm. death in a restaurant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to frighten people too much. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, see, see, I always say when I'm taking people out foraging for the first time, I say, look, I'm here to inspire you and and scare you a lot. Mm. You know, because like the inspiration is that most things are edible, and 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 then the scare you bit is that unless you really know what you're doing, well, I say it's like Russian roulette, right? Only with mm. Russian roulette, you've got one bullet and five empty chambers, right? So mm. with with plants and mushrooms, it's probably um, one bullet and a few hundred chambers, mm. but it's still Russian roulette. So, it yeah. And it goes yeah. back to our earlier comments about not knowing what you don't know initially is that I think a lot right. of people, they learn a few things and they think, all oh, right, well, I'm equipped now to go out and, and feed myself. And actually yeah. there's a lot that you don't know. And one of the things I always try and say to people is if, if you don't know it, just leave it out. Don't even like you, you know, you were yeah. saying about the fungi, you know, I don't know what this is. I'm going to move on. So Exactly. I mean, people yeah. say, oh, I wouldn't dare. I'd be too afraid to do it. I said, you make a great forager. That's exactly what you need to be. Mm. You're too afraid to eat it if you don't know exactly what it is. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. That's exactly the logic <laughs> you need to employ. I'm too afraid to eat it if I don't know what it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it's just making sure you've got a robust methodology for working out or finding out what it is. Well, that's unfortunately where we get into the minefield that we we discussed earlier. Mm. That, that that and uh, so you you need to actually have some kind of methodology for checking people's credentials, you know, because there's books out there that's that that've got recipes for, um, for example, uh, comfrey fritters and things like that. Now, look, it's not going to kill you to eat comfrey fritters every once in a while, but you might at least put a comment there that that tells you that comfrey contains alkaloids which will destroy your liver if you eat it too often yeah and, and there's there's several books out there that don't even say that and they're, they're still out there there's not they haven't republished it with a no. correction well this they're is this is still out there. this is kind of again sort of again these echoes that you might comment about oliver rackham and but also this thing you know comfrey was a plant that i was thinking of i mentioned ragwort because that's got some similar it's got the same alkaloids isn't it yeah, yeah. exactly um, but comfrey is another one that was eaten as a it was a peasant food. The roots were eaten in in Europe in the past. The leaves were used um, both medicinally and as a vegetable. And that knowledge is out there. It's written down, and you know people didn't know that it knackers the tubules in your liver and contributes to liver cancer if you eat too much of it. But that, mm. and you wonder if the people writing those books or that wrote those books even knew that. I'm puzzled, and I, I don't know. Mm. Some people are quite on a different end of the spectrum, saying that it's it's part of the sort of paranoia and exaggeration about toxicity. I, I, it's just always just bothered me so much when I read about the, the the one one case where someone went on a comfrey diet and died of sclerosis of the liver. You know, so mm. uh, you know, obviously that there's 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 a, a dose dosage issue there, but it's just like we should at least be informed about the issues. That's what Absolutely. I think. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and maybe use most of it for fertilizing your tomatoes. Or, or yes, or as, or as medicine. I mean, it's still nip bone, like oh, yeah. the, the the most miraculous thing to put your bones back together. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we 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 well, we actually we 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 were using it as a poultice because because uh, Ali, my other half, had a, a knee condition, and a friend recommended a poultice with this stuff. Um, but the kids were just discovering all these uh, 
extraordinary ways to make slime at the time. <laughs> okay, and actually, yeah. a comfrey poultice is is fairly respectable form of slime. It just doesn't last very long. It kind of it, it it turns to sludge in, in, in a little while. But <laughs> green and slimy, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. But going back to um, so 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 Mike Mike so it might go it might go back to where you were going, but okay. I think so your so you went from Carluccio's thirty plants, twenty thirty plants recipes, delicious recipes to writing a book about that contains yeah. a couple of hundred, three hundred. Yeah. What was your robust methodology from going from A to B at the ends of those kind of spectrums of learning initially yeah. through to feeling confident enough to write all that down in a book? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, the, the writing the book, I have to say, was a it was a was a learning process in itself. There's a whole bunch of stuff in that book I didn't know before I started writing it, and I, I prefer to be upfront about that. Um, well, I think that's one of the good things about writing anything. If you're writing mm. an, an article, I mean, I found that with you know, I've, I've been maintaining my blog for eight years now, and when you sit down to write stuff, and that going back to that point we're making about fact fact checking. You start reading around the subject, and you learn a lot more about it yourself as well. Basically, you know. So yeah, sorry, I interrupted I think, you again. Uh, well, but, I think no, that's fine. I think yeah. you know, I think that is that's the reality of, of, of writing books. I mean, it, it, the, the, but but the thing I, the, uh, or for most people, I would say someone like Sam Thayer is 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 um, is not someone that goes and does lots of research when he's writing his book. He's basically um, putting across stuff that he's known all his life. Um, and I would say that's the better way to be, but unfortunately, there wasn't anybody that 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 was going to write that kind of book. Um, and and then again, you know, the way that Sam goes about it—if if anyone knows this work, they'll 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 recognise this. Sam writes a book and just tells you a bit of what he knows in that book, because he's going to go into all the detail and all the depth about um, thirty plants. And, and you'll find out pretty much everything he knows about those plants because he knows them inside out and upside down. My book is a bit more of a, um, an attempt to be comprehensive and, and it's, I mean, it's nowhere near it. Um, I talked to Robin Harford recently and he's, he's produced a list of, of, of around about 800 wild plants now um, following a similar methodology to mine, but, but he's, 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 he's dug a bit deeper. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm covering in detail about 300 plants and then probably one for every day of the year in total with the, with the, with the briefer references to others. And, um, you know, that was an extraordinary process to, to explore in all sorts of different ways. So what, what, what I was freed up to do basically having been given this task, um, was to, you know, pursue all these different lines of inquiry. And one of the things I did was was just cross-reference from plant families and say, well, okay, let's start with the cabbage family. And, um, I mean, Robin's list probably, I haven't really talked about it in detail, but probably includes everything in the cabbage family because <laughs> yeah. what I soon found out... They're all yeah, edible. They're all edible, yeah. yeah. So that's that's a, that's a that's an easy one. Goosefoot family, all edible. There's, there's, uh, there's one... One uh, medicinal plant in in South America, which is edible, but you probably want to not eat too much of it. But all of our British ones are just safe as houses um, and good edible. So if it's in the it's, if it's in the goosefoot family, you can eat it. And then discovering other things that were not quite so reassuring, like 
nightshade family plants can have edible bits and and really toxic bits um well we know that don't we tomatoes and potatoes and well you say that but i mean recently i've discovered with potatoes i don't know if you've come across this paul but like this uh, the bangladeshi community in 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 london um they uh they buy uh potato tops from this um community gardening scheme because they eat them Hmm. i've been taught my life they're toxic but they're not. Yeah, okay. But you can get alkaloid poisoning from potatoes when they start to sprout, can't you? Green green potatoes, apparently, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe it's just at that stage where they're protecting themselves from predation when they're starting to shoot that that's maybe yeah. the most poisonous. Because plants often are most toxic when they're, you know, even things like hemlock water dropwort are most toxic in the late winter and the spring because mm. that's when they're sort of ready to sprout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Which... Yeah, I mean that's that sort of extra information that. Yeah, I mean you just you, well in that case you just need to know the first bit of information first, which is don't eat it, and then <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. Not <laughs> might when be it's... reassuring. Yeah. to know that like had you eaten it by mistake, yeah, <laughs> you might be safer doing it one time or another. But, yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. But yeah, anyway, so I'm perhaps going into a bit more d- d- detail than I need to, but basically just cross-referencing from plant families opens up a lot because. You know, if you know some are safe, then you can just go for it. Um, and then in the carrot, case of the carrot family, which we touched on there with hemlock water dropwort, you notice some deadly poisonous ones. So you need to be absolutely sure, not just of your information about the whether you can eat the plant, but with the identification, because the one you mentioned looks very similar to um, wild celery. And spine-chillingly, we know some places where both plants grow, and we, mm-hmm. we just don't harvest from there. No. You know, I, I might for myself for a salad, but not for a restaurant. Yeah. We just and, can't take the risk. Yeah, yeah, and even it, and and, and the, if you've got less knowledge as well, people have mistaken them as wild parsnips because the roots roots are sort yeah. of similar. Um, and then wh- whenever I show people hemlock water dropwort, they and they don't know what it is. I say, well, what does it look like to you? And they either say flat leaf parsley or coriander right. yeah. or coriander. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. So, ones like that but then but then the other the other thing is is talking to people i you know i made contact with a lot of botanists and 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 other foragers people like francois couplin and um the, the great botanist john Acroyd, uh who turned out to be an avid forager as well um i got some great sort of knowledge from him but but you know we've been returning the favor lately and and uh sending him our wild box which we'll mention later and, and so he's been learning some some plants that he, he didn't didn't know you could eat um so people like that um with knowledge of traditional uh plant uses herbal medicine a little bit you know if, if something's being used uh by a, a medical herbalist um you can ask them some questions about i mean hawthorn was a good one there i mean i knew it was edible but i knew it had medicinal benefits and i thought well i wonder if there's a a dose thing here and i was reassured by this medical herbalist um, Henrietta Kress, she told me, you can't overdose on this. I thought, well, great, well, you can't eat too much either then. No. You know, that's that sort of thing, that sort of extrapolation. And, uh, um, uh, but and, some and of that's been was, used for, for heart benefits. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's a heart tonic, like every mm-hmm. part of the plant, every edible part of the plant. Um, and, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's something that people could eat or drink every day. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get in the habit of drinking a tea from that. Not because I have a heart condition, but it seems like a good idea to yeah. 
make sure I don't. So is but, that from uh, the from the the whores? From it's the, from the flowers. From the flowers. Right. It's from the flowers, and it's really it's a really lovely tea. And and I've been drinking it with um, meadow, either meadow sweet leaf or or meadow sweet um, flower again because those things contain salicylic acid, which is good for the heart. Yep. I think well, this is a great tea for 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 that but but also the flavors work really really nicely um so anyway all of these different sources of information and, and gathering them together but but then one of the fun things was taking something like hogweed and saying well it seems to be the case um that unlike the nightshade family ho- uh, carrot family plants are either edible or not edible so based on that um we started looking at different bits of the plant which weren't in the wild food literature um, and so that's how we discovered hogweed seeds. Um, and, of course, we didn't discover anything. I found out that Francois Couplin had a book published 20 years before mine that, that, that has recipes for hogweed seeds. And then subsequently we found out that all across the Middle East they use it. And, and in um, where is it? Iran, for example, it's called uh, Golpar. And, and they use it in all kinds of traditional Persian cooking and, and in Iraq and Syria. Um, so in that sense, we hadn't discovered anything. But but for us, we were thrilled to mm. bits. This is a spice. And none of the wild food books say that, but through just tasting every bit through the seasons, we've discovered something, for us anyway. Mm. Yeah. No, that's wonderful. And there, and there are actually some, you know, maybe people don't realise, I mean, there's quite a lot of aromatic spices that come from that family, aren't there? Well, about half. Right. About half of our herbs and spices are in the carrot family. Things mm. like coriander and cumin and dill and chervil and parsley yeah yeah full of full of aromatics and um um so i mean that that and and you know like we're still on that for for me i'm probably more um focused on actual recipes and cooking now than than i've ever been because i see it as the second the second wave really one is one is we've got to say hello to these plants and shake them by the hand and and recognize them and say you know you're right mate like meeting your neighbor but Mm -hmm. You know, we need to go beyond that and 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 weave them into our family life and our cultural life because that's what we've lost. You know, and and it's a kind of weird thing because on the one hand, innovative chefs are taking things seemingly out of nowhere and just crafting uh, elaborate dishes. You know, and 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 bushcraft people are sort of getting it on the list so that if you do get stuck in the wilderness, you know, you could survive by eating this. But um, so it's, there's a lot of different angles, and now, sorry, yeah, you were going to say. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, and no. Okay. <laughs> at the survive at the survival end of the spectrum, yeah. I mean, I I say, look, if you need some carbs, you know, cattail, you know, tifa species, they're all, you know, got rhizomes with carbs in them, and then there's other bits you can eat as well, yeah. and then you know, and they're widespread. So if you you know, think about the places where you are going to be stranded. Well, it's not going to be Hyde Park. It's going to be you know out in the boonies somewhere you know northern hemisphere wild places you often find cattails burdock various things yeah you know so you know silverweed pignuts all those things that you can easily get carbs from but then yeah i mean bushcraft isn't just about survival it's also about okay you choose to go out and do a canoe trip or a camping trip or what have you and knowing the wild foods as well as maybe some of the medicinal plants is useful to you you know i've picked fungi on trips and augmented you know we've had you know dehydrated rations it's the second week of a trip we've used all our mm. fresh stuff and we found fresh stuff along the way and it's it's great because you can you can make use of it you're not just in a bubble where you're you know relying on what you've taken with you 
So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I guess it's a bit of a caricature. What I was saying, no, but you're right. Like the the you extreme are, end where people are like. I'm tooled up with this knowledge. If the worst happens, I could. But yeah. in practice, people are basically just going out and spending time. Well, yeah, yes, yes and no. I mean, yeah. to be honest, one of the reasons why I mm. make these podcasts and mm. have people like you on here and still have it under the banner of, of bushcraft and wilderness skills is because I think most bushcraft people, and we can go back to the YouTube channels if you want, it's all about knives and axes and setting fire to stuff, cooking a steak on the fire, <laughs> um, and what type of hammock you've got. And then, right. you know, there's, you know, for me, the, right. the core of bushcraft is understanding the natural world, whether that's the plants, the animals, the fungi, you know, how water works if you're in the river, natural navigation. And so, to me, knowing what foods, what wild foods there are, is integral to that knowledge. It just, it just it's just part of it as far as I'm concerned it's not just about you know okay if I'm in the shit what can I eat until I get home I mean that's that's you know it's useful at that end of the spectrum but equally it to me it goes deeper than that it's about the relationship with the with the environment that you're in and I don't see enough of that in most of the bushcraft material online so which is probably why you've got that caricature of it yeah <laughs> Yeah, sure. And and I think, well, I mean, it's great to hear you say that because, I mean, I wish I had a lot more of that kind of practical um, knowledge just because for me, you know, I've, I've got similar motivation really. It's just I want to be able to be out on, on land and be like any other species, you know, mm. that is able to work with what's there, you know, because we, we've, we've been so de-skilled by um technology and that's that, that's probably my main anti-technology rant that i alluded to earlier if i was to get on it i'd be saying well look you know technology has just severed all of the bonds that used to exist between us and and the place where we are because in the past we didn't have the option of, of everything being shipped in from somewhere else and somebody else doing it for us with a machine we we had um we were basically outsourcing the basic functionality of everyday life and and actually needing to 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 have those connections with your surroundings because uh, of of meeting your basic everyday needs okay you know in some ways you 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 find examples where where it was laborious and and tough but you know the the, the evidence from um ethnography and uh, anthropology and so on is is that in a lot of cases tribal peoples didn't work as much as we do you know uh, so we've actually it's not such a clever trick after all you know we <laughs> we ended up on this treadmill so we can buy all the gear that that does all the stuff for us which we used to do in half a time when we did it for ourselves and then we had the benefit of this you know just exploring this idea not idea I'm, I'm trying to get into this space you know of of just being in in that place being part of that landscape and and just breathing the the you know the the cycles of life and the and the uh, and and just being part of the presence you know like instead of us just going out there and going oh you know beautiful landscape what about beautiful us you know like because we used to be part of that and mm. I saw that once right if I can try and describe to you what I saw some Chinese ladies gathering black mustard by the side of the road in Blackheath. You know, and it was something I could see. They 
grew up somewhere else on a Chinese hillside doing that. I could just, I mean, this perhaps it's just over-romanticized bullshit, but like it seemed very real to me at the time that what I was witnessing there was, was, was heritage, you know. The same ladies in another place, another part of the world, connecting with land, and they found that same plant there on Blackheath. And ah, there's just something yeah. about us as a species when we're in the land. And, and, and to me, like what you're saying there, that, the, that, the, that an, an, another motivation to be out there and, and knowing how to uh, do all those skills is so that you can, you can just properly be there. You know, yes. you're not, it's not being mediated through the stuff you bought in a plastic bag. And no. you can actually be there and with the stuff that you find. You yeah. know, that was, that was one of my big, and, and people that have sort of followed my stuff for a while, but will have heard me say this before, but one of the big motivating factors for me to become kind of consumed by bushcraft skills was because I was doing a lot of hiking and camping and backpacking. Right. And, and, but it was all, you know, I've got my stove, I've got my, you know, I've got my camping right. meals. I've got my, you know, and I'm just like, I'm not connected with this landscape at all, right. other than putting my feet on it and walking through it and kind of thinking, well, that's nice, but I'm not connected with it. I don't know, you know, what I can, what I can eat here. And, um, one of the reasons I asked you earlier, if your friends trusted you when you started getting into wild foods was, um, I, I did a, a hiking trip in the Pyrenees with a friend of mine. He'd, he'd done the same course as me at university. And we kind of, um, he was into backpacking and walking and stuff. We did this trip in the Pyrenees yeah. and we were camping on this lovely sort of Alp Alpine like meadow um, before going up higher the next day. And there was this old barn that was derelict, um, must have been like an old shepherd's hut or something. And the slate roof had slid off the back and in amongst all this slate were all these wild strawberry plants growing. And I was like, fantastic. And I went and got my mug and I collected all these wild strawberries like probably about half a pint of like wild and they're only little aren't they but they've got fantastic flavor oh yeah collected them i was so excited and i went back and i knew about them because when i grew up i spent part of my childhood in north wales um we had wild strawberry plants in the garden and my parents had yeah. showed had shown me so i knew exactly what they were i didn't know a lot of wild foods at that point but i was like that was one i was confident about and I took him back and I said, Mike, Mike, look what I found, wild strawberries. And he was like, they don't look like strawberries to me. And I'm like, yeah, they are. He said, they're a bit small. Are you sure? I'm like, no, they're wild strawberries. And he literally would not try one. He was like, no, you're going to. Wow. So I was like, and I, to be honest, I didn't try and twist his arm that much because I'm like, if you, you know. You'd have more, all the more yeah, for you. Exactly. <laughs> but then that was, a, again, that was, you know, during a period where I was like, I, I want more of this. I want to know what else is here that I could be enjoying and that was, you know, that side of me was a big motivating factor to kind of find out more about all the, you know, the uses of the trees and the plants and what was edible and what wasn't. And yeah, mm. yeah, that connection with the with the landscape. So and, and what you say about, you know, that heritage as well. I've seen a similar thing in, in London um, and I'm kind of caricaturing a little bit. They were Eastern European ladies, um, middle aged, a bit older you know, head scarves. They may have been Romanian. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not being, you know, I'm not trying not to be, uh, uh, you know, pigeonholing them, but they were definitely not British. They were, they were Eastern European and they were picking wild greens just from the side mm. of the canal towpath, you know, and again, yeah. you can see that that was something that they'd been doing all their lives, you know, just putting them into a carrier bag and taking them home or whatever. So, yeah. And, and I mean, that's, so that's, that's the thing I was, I was trying to sort of make a point uh, there about the, um, 
it sort of hooks back into this thing like where the uh, different threads of people engaging with wild foods are. You know, mm. like, so I was kind of started making a list there, and, and, then, and then we dug down into the bushcraft thing a bit, and you corrected me there. But um, so, <laughs> but bushcraft in, in in all its permutations is 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 still quite an experimental, explorative thing, along along with the um, mm. along with the uh, sort of high gastronomy and the chefs and also this other thread that's coming in now um through things like the slow food movement or people into into just super nutritious food uh people are engaging for that reason which i think is really interesting Mm. but it it all comes back together for me in in realizing that there were these traditions and and in some cases still are these traditions and 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 as with your Eastern European ladies and the, and the Chinese ladies that I saw. Um, and um, that's where we're trying to get back to, that I feel, that that we don't want it to just be, you know, you know, strange people like Paul and Miles that just want to go out in the woods and do what we do. Um, because this just, I want to say, how is it that, uh, Francois Couplon gave his talk and he listed through a whole bunch of plants and it was basically his talk was, this is this one that goes here, you can eat it for the, but then he just stopped about halfway through, lifted his hands up and had this just completely incredulous look on his face and says, how is it that you people don't know these things? <laughs> and I thought, brilliant. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a great speech. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was it. That was well, his punchline. It's, it's How big, is it you people yeah, don't notice? Things? There's a big question there, though, isn't there? You know, you, you sort of touched on it with division of labor. You know, we've all become, you know, as a society, very specialist. Yeah. And we don't know how to do everything. Um, not that we could do everything that is, you know, we couldn't make a phone or build a plane or something. But, you know, a lot of the basic things we don't know how to do now. Um, that people think about it. Phones and planes are all about being somewhere else, aren't they? <laughs> yes. We could we could do things that help us be here. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, but you know, there's a lot of basic things that people could know how to do for themselves. Um, I mean, a number yeah. of people, number of people that I teach these days that don't really know how to cook anything, no. anything. And you're trying to take them to the next level of having to teach. To, to cook wild and they don't even yeah. know how to cook on a campfire and yeah and they've they never you know they, you get them to make a stew in a billy can and they've never done that at home you know it's um yeah so that's the kind of that's the point we've got to with society where we're having to sort of re-educate ourselves well you know i mean we're we're in a similar position i, I mentioned the wild box which which mm, what's that i mean I, I, I know what it is vaguely i mean i've seen it on your website mm. but i've never seen one in reality so tell us about that yeah well i, I do want to plug it because we we're, we're, we're really um well you've got some accolades for it haven't you 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 won the best subscription box yeah yep. in uh the great british food awards that mm. was that was that was quite a buzz we beat abel and cole and all these other big boys mm. um but you know, the the wild box comes for me out of the realization I had about my own wild food journey that it was it was it was good recipes. I needed to have those plants in my hand, but I also needed to know what to do with them. So that's what we do with the wild box. We send seven ingredients out every week plus recipes. I was doing all the recipes, and I've, but I've now handed that over to uh, Stephen Black, who's a vegan chef that works with us, and and. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled that the so he's doing totally plant based recipes, which uh, which I think is is a is 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 an exciting uh, new twist to it really to just prove that you can eat delicious meals with wild plants. Mm. 
just just using plant-based stuff but anyway the, the the point is that it's the key is knowing how to cook with these ingredients because otherwise it's just more knowledge in your head i could eat a dandelion yes i could eat a this it's in theory only so you just um have a possibility there whereas whereas an actual fact of this being part of your diet and part of your lifestyle and then ultimately becoming part of our food culture again that only happens when we have good recipes um and so that's what we're trying to do is every week put seven wild ingredients in people's hands it comes in a box but it comes with extensive notes about each ingredient and me pontificating on how important all this stuff is for about a page as well so you get four sides of writing pontification page one details of plants page two and page three and four is is recipes um and in the first 30 weeks, we covered 75 different species. I couldn't believe it when I went back and counted. Hmm. And 90, 94 ingredients, because some of the species are used in, in different, different parts of them. Um, but that's the thing I've realized is I'm trying to teach people to cook with wild food through that. And actually, there's a challenge that some of, the, some of my kind of friends who've, who we've sent it to to try, um, they just don't get around to it. Hmm. And they're people that are deeply into food, mm. but they just don't get around to cooking. They they have it, and it and it and and for some of them it goes rotten in their fridge before they've used it. This is the old fruit in the fruit bowl not getting eaten syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Mm. it's because they basically they don't cook. Mm. They actually don't cook every day. You just re- hang on a minute. We're assuming everybody gets home from work and cooks a meal, mm. and that's not the case. It isn't. No, and and that's that's just wow. Yeah, no, I, fi- I find it amazing. I mean, because I, you know, but you've got to look at it from other people's perspective because I've always done that. I've always cooked from first principles and it just doesn't seem unusual to me. And, and but, but I mean, I'm getting more and more worked up about this as, 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 as time goes on, you know, realizing, you know, as you study. So the, 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 uh, the, the wild plants, so I'm just basic points. So the, the wild plants are generally almost exclusively more nutritious than cultivated ones. So the odd exception, like kale, is unbelievably nutritious and probably more so than wild cabbage. Carrots and any things with lots of color in the root are probably more nutritious than the wild root because those colors are um, antioxidants and, and other beneficial compounds. But generally, wild plants are off the scale in terms of their um, vitamin content, their, their antioxidant content, or their mineral content. I mean, different ones are good for different things. But the point is, when you get wild plants into your diet, you are then eating far more, um, a, a much larger number of, of species. So each one of those species being more nutritious, and then lots of them. Just imagine what 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 the sum total effect of that is to, mm-hmm. to do that. So we feel like we're 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 providing a route through this wild box. But anyway, you don't have to have the wild box. Anyone that explores. Um, foraging that's what you're doing you're inducting yourself into a world of dietary diversity and a diversity of super nutritious individual elements in that dietary diversity okay so then the mirror of that unfortunately or the dark side of that is industrial food what is it doing it's reducing the number of things you eat and then each one of them because they're cultivated are being nutritionally impoverished and that's happened since the 50s they've they've even the vegetables in the 50s were more nutritious Basically, um, they've been selectively bred now to be sweeter. 
fatter, have a better shelf life, be prettier, have more water in them, you know. So you're eating fewer things and each of those fewer things is nutritionally impoverished. And then you're not even eating those things fresh. You're eating them because they've gone through an industrial process and you're now eating them in a ready meal with all kinds of compounds in there, which yeah. just never should be passing the lips of a human being. Um, and we're not evolved to deal with those compounds. And and so you, you, you're on the one hand not using this incredible support system, life support system of, of wild food on the land, which we've co-evolved with all these plants so that all the tiny little micro doses of chemicals in all of those plants enhance our health, build our immune system, protect us from cancer, all of those wonderful things that they do. So on the other hand, we're, 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 we're being cut off from that life support system. On the other hand, we're being plugged in to this, this the dealers in death, you know, these industrial people, these industrial food people, they deal in death. They are feeding you higher doses of refined carbohydrate that's pushing you down the route to heart disease, cancer, and, and, and diabetes. diabetes yeah. mm -hmm. On the other hand, they're putting in chemicals which have other all kinds of things, and the trace amounts of pesticides on the, all the industrially farmed stuff, ah, mm. it's death, 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 death. And, and whereas the wild stuff is life, 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 life. So, you know, um, yeah, as you can see. So what, like, does the word, what does the word wild mean to you? miles uh primarily it means life it means complexity it means depth it means nurturing to me like the wild has nurtured itself and the individual components thereof for billions of years we think somehow we can cut ourselves off from that life support system and do better with uh, genetic modification and, and 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 reducing complexity down to the simplicity of an industrially farmed field that produces just one thing and kills every other living thing in that field yeah, that's not an improvement, folks. That is a retrograde step. That is, that is, you know, we're imploding on ourselves now because we thought that was a better idea than to uh, than to live wild. You know, I just think it's basically uh, a, a a thing that is trustworthy and reliable. That's what I would say with wild. You know, people people obviously think, oh, it's wild. You know, it's out of control. Da da da. No, it's out of your control. Mm. It's not out. You know, it's a very finely tuned, balanced system incredibly robust incredibly actually kind when you see what wildlife does to, to support everything in the system yeah there's harsh bits like cold winters and you know predatory animals but even predatory animals you find out that you know um you know i'm a christian so this 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 took the wind out of my sails because we had this great story about the guys that got sacrificed to the lions in the time of nero yeah, mm -hmm. they said they didn't feel any pain, and we used to say, "Well, let's you know, God came and and sorted them out." Turns out it's not the case. You know, <laughs> actually, what happens when you get eaten by a lion is you get blissed out. You mm. you have this this, this this people have nearly been eaten by a lion and have told this story, right? The lion's about to eat them, and then someone shoots it dead, and they say, "I can't tell you how I felt. I felt so calm. I felt loved. I felt safe." In spite of that, I'm about to be eaten alive. And what it is is the neurophysiology in your body kicks into this uh, this, um, this this shutdown mode that, that kills pain and just totally calms you. It's what a mouse does in a more extreme way when it freezes when it's caught by a cat. Death feigning. Well, this is halfway on the way to that. And you don't feel any pain. So how kind is that? So, you know, anyway. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. One of the other things with 
um, farming, of course. And I, we, I do wonder if it all started with farming. Um, one of the other things with farming, of course, is that that also limits the amount of space there is for the wild foods. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just us taking over, isn't it? And, 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 and I think we have to look into how we could, you know, there's this whole rewilding movement at the moment, which I, I hate and detest really, because it's all about pretending people aren't here and never were, you know, and it's like a, a, an act of, um, what you will, you know, like a pe- penance, you know, <laughs> like Catholic guilt for being human, you know, mm. um, you know, like we, 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 we need to just let the wild get back to the wild. No, the wild flourished when we were wild, you know, when, when we were indigenous people living on land, um, you know, there were some costs obviously, but there is to every species, every species that moves into a landscape, you know, there are, there are negative effects, but basically we were the, uh, apex predator and the keystone species on the land in, in, in all the places we were until, we became uh, agriculturalists, and then we we uh, we changed tack and and started um, in in many cases having a, a much more detrimental effect. But that really has come into its own since in the industrial revolution. Now agriculture is an unmitigated disaster, you know. Um, uh, but frankly, it was before, you know. Everywhere there was agriculture, as 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 is turned to desert or turned to like the Scottish uplands, it's all moorland now because it's the, the the soil has been wrecked by farming. People think that's a wild landscape, but it's not. It's an artifice of, of it's the desolation left after after agriculture. So you know, I think we have to look at at how we can go back to the wild, and hundred percent, in the sense that we work within complex ecosystems and that what we're doing is 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 uh influencing the wild ecology to make it productive in certain directions in order to support our needs you know if you if you ask me how i'd say well i don't know but we can look back to our ancestors and see the kinds of things they did and then see that nowadays we understand microbiology that they didn't we understand mycology like they didn't we could do things to cultivate wild colonies of things and and you know coat the inside of buildings with plants and fungi for example who who knows you know mm. but but i think i think there are possibilities for us to go back into the wild one thing i'm sure of is that we can't carry on in the trajectory that we're on so when people say oh yeah well that's unrealistic well it's unrealistic for us to carry on thinking that we can clear whole swathes of the earth and say nothing else lives here except for our cultivated things or our tarmac and our concrete and so on we we have to we have to explore what it would look like for for us to to properly rewild so i love the idea of rewilding but not as this artificial thing that pretends there are no humans you know and there's banned yeah. humans for this bit. and there's, there's 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 a kind of band of conservation which kind of comes butts heads with bushcraft as well in the sense that Again, it's the you know humans can't touch the environment in any way, shape, or form, and it it, it appears I've 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 witnessed it in a number of ways um, where people are saying, oh, you shouldn't be teaching people how to how to light fires. That's not good for the environment. And yeah, sure enough, you, you don't want to be encouraging bushfires that wouldn't happen otherwise. You don't want to be leaving a mess. And in some areas that are intensively used, okay, yes, you might be burning too much dead wood that provides habitats for beetles and therefore food for woodpeckers and all those things. I understand that. But equally, if you're 
completely saying never have a campfire you, you know that's that's just bad for the environment so what are we going to do then we're going to take a stove and petrochemical fuels and those st stoves made out of metal that's dug out of a big hole in the ground somewhere maybe in south america yeah. where they've cut the forest down you know it's like there are consequences to every decision that you make and just because yeah. it's not making an immediate impact on the environment that you're in doesn't mean to say it's not making an impact on the environment and i always try and look at it as holistically as, as I possibly can. And, and one of the things I liked in your manifesto, your foraging manifesto, and you, you echo what Sam Thayer says about, you know, because I, I get this with, you know, bushcraft as well, whether it's the wild food side of things, but also whether it's, you know, taking, you know, nettles for making mm. cordage or, you know, withies, you know, willow wands for making withies or whatever it is. It's like, oh, no, you're, you know, that you're damaging the environment. Um, and so you see this, but it's like well, with the agriculture, it's like that is food from the land. It's just different food from the land. And, you know, we are we are living from the land, as you say in your manifesto. Um, well, I just think I just think if, if, if people think that way, they should go and shoot themselves immediately because because like pretty much everything you're consuming. How did you get to where you are? Yes. You drove. Yes. You know, how are you making this phone call? You're burning electricity. Yes. You, you know, just just. Go and die because you know if if you if you if you don't want to have a footprint, don't come and hassle me because I'm trying to have this footprint that involves something with an immediate feedback mechanism. Mm. So I've cut that tree. There is now not that branch there. Okay, I can see that. That means I can actually negotiate that and and try and respond if if that is actually a damaging effect. It isn't, but you know somebody thinks it is. Um, but but we just we can watch that woodland in the next ten years, and if if by chance something we're doing is having that negative impact, well, of course we're there. We can see it and we can respond. But you can't respond. That's why we've just got our fingers in our ears and we're closing our eyes to the to the issues around climate change because you can't see it. No. You can say, oh well, that Californian wildfire, you know, it might not be because of, you know all the amassing evidence is showing it's definitely hotter now than it was. You know, you can't escape that, and and yet we can escape it in our daily lives because it's not in front of us. Mm. See, that, and to me, like all of the things that we do where we have immediate contact, we're entering back into that sphere of responsibility. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm doing something in this place, so that means this place is going to tell me if I'm causing an impact. Mm. And the fact is people always have responded to that. The only time you get people that don't is basically landless peasants that have been disenfranchised. They move into a new place, they've got no land rights, they've got no relationship. Well, then they will dig every last root of that medicinal plant in order to make money because they're screwed. They're just like, well, we've got no hope, we've got no mm. future. We just have to put food on the table today. But the, but the answer is to get back to where we used to be, where people had uh, a, a relationship with land that wasn't being mediated by con conservation bullies or, or, or uh, something else, you know, that, that, that we actually, we have dis discussed and agreed, you know, people that live in this area we've all sat down and talked about it and we thrashed it out and argued and decided you know this is how we're going to approach foraging xyz or making cord out of xyz you know mm. that's the way it used to be it was management of common resources but now it's all through the council or natural england or mm. you know something like that all bureaucrats who sit in ivory towers and don't have any vital contact with land so yeah, we we uh, I feel like you know bushcraft foraging. It's all moving us back to correct the root of the problem. For me, mm. Paul, the root of the problem is the vital connection has been cut. Yes, 
between people and land. Well, what, one thing I notice, you know, you have people come on a course, even for a day, and you start showing them just some simple wild foods. So it might be some things they can taste immediately, like, I don't know, wood bittercress or something. Yeah. A few things they can make some teas out of, maybe some ground ivy and wood, you know, show them some wood sorrel and other bits and pieces that they can taste and smell and get some sort of interaction with immediately. Um they're straight away being more careful about where they're putting their feet and they're starting that's to value <laughs> what's what's there and that's just that's just immediate just yeah. immediate there's, it, a, there's an increased connection and value of the environment that's around they're, them they're immediately being more, more reciprocal there's there's a there's a two-way mm. they're not just blundering through that's so good yeah yeah a phrase I've read you use in, in your manifesto, again, is an ecosystem approach to food production, Miles. What yeah. is it you mean by that exactly? Well, just that it starts it starts with recognising that the ecosystem um, is producing foodstuffs. But um, I guess uh, it starts with a consciousness that the ecosystems are these wonderfully supportive things of, of supporting many species. So in other words, you know, they produce multiple benefits rather than just the, uh, the singular outputs of, of agricultural systems. Any given bit of land is just producing this one food. Mm. Um, even to the point where we only use one part of a plant, you know, like the oil seed rape that's grown everywhere. One of the few non wild things that we've, sold to restaurants over the years is, is uh, the leaves of the rape green because they're fantastic cabbagey leaf mm-hmm. um, and a few farmers have now sort of taken the wind of our, of our sales and they sell directly to the to the restaurants now so um, but that that feels kind of good that we we've, yeah. we've uh, we got that started. Um, that, that, that's what happens when you teach people <laughs> how to use things, isn't yeah. it? But, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. That has its ebbs and flows in terms of your business of supplying stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, anyway, so the, the thing is that lots of things being produced by the same bit of land supporting lots of different species. And then the idea that for us to use that is entering in to uh to your to use your phrase the ebb and flow you know the 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 uh you know the fact of what happens in an ecosystem is that living things eat other things Mm. that really upsets some people but you know the reality is that you know the snail eats the leaf and the bird eats the snail and it's just like energy and matter just flowing through Mm-hmm. flowing through the digestive tract of different organisms and flowing through the 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 you know the the microbes breaking things down and the water dissolving the minerals and plants sucking them up and it's just it's just everything's just moving and and the idea that you know food is is that basic transfer thing but that until we get involved and we, and we sort of interrupt the flow you know we just pull something out and don't put anything back the idea that for other species, using resources in an environment is just participation. You're just being a, a bit that this bit flows through for now. And, 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 and in doing that, you cause some kind of disruption, you know, like pigs going and root everything up. But like that's they've co-evolved with truffles for that. Extraordinary. Mm. And the robins, the robins like that as well, because they follow around and 
It's the reason robins follow gardeners around when they're digging the garden over. It's because they they used yeah. to follow pigs around. That's the theory anyway, and they could uh, get that, the tidbits from the ground that had been turned over. Fantastic. Well, they follow yeah. foragers too. We just before this call, we were we were we were collecting um, wild chervil from the base of a hedge, mm-hmm. and and a, a robin also obviously thought that, that there was prospects there for for, for for little grubs to eat and so on because he's right close to us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Um, that's it. So, you know, that the eating food is, and using any other kind of resource from the land, which is all other species do, right? So it's a realization I came to that, 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 that squirrels and slugs and every other species except us, all they do is get the resources that they need from the place where they live. You know, so we've, we've come this, become this thing that's out Everything else is in. It's just participating mm. Mm. in that cycle, in that flow, in that exchange. And we're out. <laughs> and not only that, we're just sabotaging. We're disrupting and destroying. You know, it's So um, just basically the idea of an ecosystem-based approach to food is, is that we get back in. Mm. We're out but now, but this is the way back in. Just start eating the dandelions on your lawn and you become a part of it. You know, uh, the problem is that you're – poo is going to go down the toilet in the local sewer but ideally you know, <laughs> i guess uh, I, I read a great book once called how to shit in the woods it's a fantastic yeah, book yeah. i don't know if it's the print but i, uh, I know it yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing like you were supposed to give something back like in these chinese households they used to invite you to eat and you could eat until you were stuffed they didn't let you leave until they had their your pee and your and your and your poo <laughs> because that's going back in the soil thank mm, you mm. um yeah, so it's just just getting back into the land. That's what we need to do. We're just not back to the land, but into the land. And when I say into the land, I mean back into these these cycles. And just realize that like there are ways, like the thing I mentioned with root fragments earlier, that causes the, the plant to prosper. Mm. It's not just putting up with us. It's prospering. And when we forage leaves, we're making that plant work harder. I'm sure the plant does not bless us for doing it. But nevertheless, there's no harm. And that plant, I, I've got this great question, right? What thing could we do to make sure there's maybe between three and ten times more wild food in the British Isles next year? Uh, not not have a lawn? Not mow your lawn? <laughs> Sounds a good one. Yeah, that would be one. Not cut all the hedgerow plants down like they seem to? on an industrialized scale with tractors i know there's a bit of a road safety issue sometimes but yeah. generally stuff is just you know i, I th- there's a canal I've, I've got a flat in london that i spend some time in and there's a canal not very far away and every so often in this in the sort of late spring and again later in the summer somebody from british waterway comes along and strims all of the plants for no i can't see any apparent reason for that so there's alexander's there there's you know, violets is, you know, through, there's all sorts of stuff there. Um, and it just gets strimmed. But the good news is, yeah, yeah, it's pointless vandalism. Yeah. But, but, but the good news is, is it grows back, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So the, 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 I mean, those are all good thoughts, but the one, the one I was, the the one I was going to, um, present in answer to my own question stop farming what, what no what <laughs> okay. one thing that's also a good thought <laughs> um i'm sure there's plenty more where that came from but mm. but the but the but the one that i've got 
buzzing in my brain is the one thing we could do to multiply by a multiple of maybe three or maybe even 20 in some cases of some plants to make sure there's that multiplication of the how much wild food is available. How could we make more wild food available in the British Isles next year? Eat it. Eat it. Because every time I pick that dandelion, it grows back. Mm-hmm. And then I pick it again, and it grows back. And in spite of what people who are a bit nervous about foraging think, I am not destroying that dandelion. Just watch what happens when you mow your lawn, ladies and gentlemen. It grows back. Same when you cut your hedge. It grows back. There's certain very few plants that, like, if you if you cut them too many times, it will discourage them from flowering. Oxide daisy doesn't like being cut back too much. Most things, they'll just get on with flowering anyway, regardless of the fact you keep picking it. And, and there's really nothing you can do to interrupt that stage. So yeah. it'll eventually produce seed anyway. Yeah, so and, gardeners, if, and gardeners are trying, you know, they're constantly they're trying, trying to, to get, to get, get the dandelions out of the lawns and the plantain out of their lawn. And it, yeah, yeah. And cutting them doesn't work. So just imagine that if we, so we have this little experiment, we have these plantain plants and these dandelion plants and these other ones over here, which we don't pick. And then we, at the end of the year, we have a way of, I don't know how you'd do it, but like weighing the total biomass that, plant produced over the year and then you have this other one over here that you harvested repeatedly yeah mm-hmm. and see what the biomass out of that was so that's where i'm getting my three to 20 times as much wild food in the british isles next year yeah by eating the stuff we've got yeah and that uh, <laughs> it's the simplest thought but that in itself is is ecological thinking we're working with that flow you know we're not actually as people that are worried about foraging thing we're not picking up the river and stealing it, <laughs> no. running off going, I got the river, ha, ha, and then you can't have it. When we do this, we are dipping a cup in the river of life, mm. having a drink, and the river keeps flowing. You know, yeah. if, if we ever see the river run dry, we're going to stop in our tracks and reevaluate what we're doing. But I can tell you, we've been commercially foraging for 15 years. We've not seen that happen. Do you no, have a, do you have a wide range of areas you use, or are hmm. you you know because it, it's interesting because you know I was going to ask this about how you know people say it's not sustainable, commercial foraging is not sustainable, and you know and I guess part of the argument is there is you know a lot of land is given over to agriculture. You know, see the preceding conversation, but you know you clearly managed to do it in a way that is sustainable because you can get the resources you need again in future so. well that's what i mean i i i veer from like one hand thinking sustainable is a very sensible word because it means exactly what you just said which is that we can keep doing this mm. to, to, to sustainable being this kind of really silly and irritating word that people use yeah. doesn't mean anything because you know like people say sustainably harvested elderflowers i mean what <laughs> what do you mean yeah how can you unsustainably harvest elderflowers? They're, they're just, it's a weed plant that crops up everywhere anyway because the birds shit the seeds out. And mm-hmm. how can you unsustainably, you know? Like, oh. Yeah. No, but it's one of those. You can't buzz, reach them all. You know, like if you take the ones it? you can reach and then there's enough for the other insects and whatever else, you know, it just, 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 and I know an NGO that, 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 that use loads of development funds. To, to pay for a project to, to develop ways of harvesting sustainably things which I just think, well, that's a no-brainer. Like, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't dig up all of the... Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a place where I walk regularly near my parents' house and um, 
I don't spend tons of time there in the summer because I'm normally down in Sussex most of the summer, but I tend to spend a bit more time autumn, winter there. And every autumn and winter, there there are hawthorns left on hawthorn bushes uh, and hedgerows that not even the bird, you know, there's just so much that it just, mm. it just goes, kind of goes to waste. You know, there's apple trees. There's a, there's a place where there's an old, um, uh, I guess it was a small holding at one point and there's apple trees there. There's pear trees there. There's cherry plum there. Nobody touches it. It's just, it mm. just goes to, I mean, the deer eat some of it when it hits the ground. There's a few roe deer in that area and they eat some of the apples and things, but most of it just goes back into the ground. I mean, there's just tons of resources there that people aren't touching already. Yeah. And that's before you get into, you know, some of that sort of semi-cultivated stuff what people have planted in, you know, but there's so much other stuff there. There's, you know, there's, you know, everything from hogweed to brook lime to just in that one little space, you know, ladies smock in the spring and just what loads of wild garlic and nobody touches it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think to, to me, the, 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 the train of thought that I'm pursuing is w- number one, how do we, encourage people which is obviously what i'm trying to do uh-huh. to eat what we do have and then see this amazing effect that i've just described that when we do that then there's a whole bunch of it that wasn't there before because it grows back uh, and then we start looking at the well how could there be more land that that's all it does is 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 or or so one of the first things we can do is is stop farming with with chemicals uh-huh. so then you have a a weed problem or is it you know because i'm fascinated by this idea of an infestation or a or a plague of something actually turning out to be just let's look at it differently you know an invasive species for example you have um japanese knotweed which yeah. is i mean it's, it's turned out to be a hysterical nonsense anyway it, does, it doesn't actually reduce shouldn't reduce the cost of your price of your house because it doesn't doesn't undermine their foundations might be slightly irritating if it breaks through the tarmac, but it, it doesn't undermine foundations, they've now decided. But anyway, there's there's an idea that it's invasive, it's not native here, and it's aggressive and it grows. But the point is, go and cut it and eat it. Mm. And you can't actually get that thing to, to, to disappear, not unless you cut it and eat it over and over and over and over and over again. Well, that sounds like the magic porridge pot to me. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The more you eat, the more it comes back. Mm-hmm. Cool. I mean, you know, all right, we wouldn't deliberately introduce red signal crayfish into our rivers if we knew what we were doing. There are negative detrimental effects, but they're there now. Okay. So what's more what's more uh, problematic? That we go and harvest as many crayfish as we possibly can and eat the delicious things when we get home and have fun with our kids stomping about in the river to do it. You know, and we we recognise there are these ecological effects of them being there, but they're there, and we can't get rid of them. So now, compare that to eating your farmed prawns, which are destroying landscapes wherever they're done um, across the across the earth. So suddenly, this is this is this is really really a positive thing. And then on the other hand, my favourite example, which I'm really getting slightly off, off topic for British wild plants, but I can't resist saying it is is a so-called swarm of locusts. You know. So those locusts coming down and just eating up the crops for miles um, and is seen as an absolute disaster, like a biblical plague. You know? um, but elsewhere in, in, for example, Africa, 
there are people that are growing crops as bait for crickets. Mm-hmm. You know, they grow that. I assume it's things like maize, but I don't actually know. Right, and it's deliberately there because they know sooner or later the 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 the, the, the mass of um, crickets will come in, eat the crop right down to the grounds, and then they have a trench at the end of the field with hay in it. And someone there ready to strike a match. And then they drive all of these crickets down the field into the trench, strike the match, and then they're lightly toasted, just the right amount of hay, and then they shovel them up, and they have now got high-quality protein. These crickets, these wild crickets have transferred, have transformed their, their crop. So you could do that with a swarm of locusts if we just put our mind to it. Instead, we we, we, we fly over it with um, an aeroplane and put pesticides yeah. on it's just and i just think there madness. are there are some exo protein products now aren't there that use insect protein but i mean it's again it's just it, it's industrialized version of common i'm sense. afraid so yeah yeah, I, yeah I, i'm not really into the kind of industrial producer production just because i just think it's a it's a wrong route mm. when it went Sorry, go on. Mm, but it's it's interesting that people will eat it when it's you know powdered and put in a tub and a nice label on it, but they won't eat it if it's yeah. We're in that we're also in that kind of realm where it, things need to be productized. We need to kind of get everyone out of that loop as well. Yeah, exactly. To just well, I mean, it's the same with meat, isn't it? Most, I mean, there'd, there'd be a lot more vegans if 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 people really face the reality of of what goes on. Um, to, to get that slab of flesh on your plate. Um, you know, and I think, um, I've got a lot of friends who are vegans. I just don't happen to agree with the basic premise that, um, we can interrupt the form of life that is that living things eat other things. But I, I think that the, the, the sort of kindness and consciousness that the vegan movement is, is, uh, advocating and producing, you know, making us all more conscious. I think that's, and I really do celebrate that because, yeah. um, you know, we we should just have the guts to face up to what it is you are actually eating all day, and and something suffered so that you can eat it. You know? Yeah. Well, I personally, I mean, I I was a vegetarian for many years at one point in my late teens and early twenties. Um, sort of, three, yeah, for, for probably nearly ten years. Um, um, but I eat meat again now, and I I I personally don't have a problem. I have a problem with a lot. Again, it goes back to the modern farming practices. Industrial. Yeah, but you know, I prefer wild meats and fish yeah. and things if I can get it. But, yeah. um, and I don't have any issue with doing it myself um, either. Um, but um, and uh, but I equally understand the the vegan argument, particularly in the context of sort of modern modern intensive farming practices. And um, the, where where I kind of where I kind of diverge with the sort of vegan thinking is when you're starting to use plastics instead of leather and things i start to have an issue there because again you're having you have a different impact on the environment and and yeah okay if you if you're concerned about not killing another living thing fair enough directly but equally what's the what's the what's the impact of the petrochemicals industry and you know i i kind of there's pros and cons and so yeah yeah. and i think yeah if if you can be vegan and eat local produce great but if you're having to get some of your plant foods shipped halfway around the world to you so you can actually get enough protein and and whatnot then i start having issues with it as well because you know it's the same argument as not having you know chili and blueberries in the supermarkets year round it's you know is that good for the planet i don't think it is yeah 
I mean, I, I just think it's 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 an area of being super conscious about one aspect of, of food, and, and and we need which which, as I say, I think is a is a really um, essential contribution to the big food discussion that we're mm. all having globally now. But you know, other people are doing uh, other parts of that thinking, you know, and 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 that will then come and challenge the vegans to be uh, more conscious. So yeah, I think it's all. There's a lot of good feedback mechanisms going on now again through through all of these conversations that we're having globally. Yeah, I I, th- I think you're right. I think it is. Um, I think it's it's good and it's important that those discussions are, are taking place. That people are starting to be more conscious of the impact they're having and the impact of the decisions that they're making. I think that's a a good step towards what we were talking about before, where you're taking responsibility for your actions and you can see the effects of your actions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's important. That's important. Um, there's a couple of other things that I'd, I'd like to kind of touch on, uh, Miles. I, I kind of want to respect your time as well. We've been talking for a while. But um, one thing that intrigued me is you know, clearly as your business has grown, um, it's I'm assuming this, it's not just you going out and picking everything that's going into the, the wild boxes and going up to London you know, for restaurants and what have you. Um, what kind of training scheme do you have for your for your teamed is there is there a process that you put them through or do you hire people who are already you know proven foragers how does it work at, at well, no, yeah people just come most people aren't um experienced when they come yeah i mean they'll either go out with me or with with um the experienced pickers you know so they'll always be learning from somebody either, either me or one of the other pickers yeah i mean i suppose it, what you have to imagine is the situation of we're not going to go out and nobody gets sent out on their first day and says go and find wild chervil and this and that. And, you know, we're going to places that we've been for for many years, and we we'll be picking one thing for a couple of hours. Hmm. So there's plenty of opportunity for somebody to really just get familiar with that one thing, um, and then you know, for initially we'll we'll obviously keep an eye and, and um, check on their quality and you know it's it's um and and you know part of the initial thing is the first available opportunity that we're shown the 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 main toxic plants and talk through what what are the differences and and so on but it's 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 much as anything it's um it's a culture yeah it's just like they might not see a particular plant because we're just not picking that at the mm-hmm. moment or mm-hmm. Or they might not be in the team that goes out and picks that, but just sooner or later, everybody gets to see everything. Yeah. Um, so it's like an yeah. apprenticeship, then, really. In that it is. Sense. It yeah. is really. Yeah. yeah. The, the, we we we. I mean, we've thought a lot about trying to formalise some of this stuff, but um, in practice, it's essential that people learn. You know, there aren't bits that people don't learn. It's just it's just it's just not so systematised. It might be. Um, were we to kind of uh, approach it in that way? Oh, that but, makes sense. Um, so you, you, mm. they're out there with the seasons, picking the plants with the more experienced pickers, and yeah. they get to know them over time it, with that kind of natural flow, as it were. Yeah, yeah and sense. then yeah. yeah, and then just every once in a while we'll do some work on on a new plant and just just try and upgrade our um, identification skills or. Um, that sort of thing. We, we should probably do more of that because everybody really likes that. It's always a good sort of 
yeah, feel good factor for team. Us, you know, yeah. yeah, team building. We'd mm-hmm. pull out the little lenses and and the books and like you know. When we had a great one the other week, there's there's two plants, corn parsley and stone parsley, and I've keep getting them like um conflated in in my own head and thought we're just going to finally nail this one down Mm -hmm. i think i think we'd cracked it when they were in flower but in the in the in the leaf stage i was still forgetting which one was which so we had fun with that the other week um yeah so yeah yeah yeah, we're still we're still trying to explore and um yeah and i think that's 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 an important point for i think for for people to understand it i mean going back to the the mycologist that i used to work with um you'd assume that she'd know everything you know as, mm-hmm. as, as somebody who was if you were new to fungi you'd be like oh you well you but there was there, every time i worked with her there was always something that she was like i'm not sure what this is get the books out you know and she was austrian originally so she had a bunch of german books as well you know that she'd get out and Brit, all the british books and go through it and um yeah, there was, there was a couple of times we found stuff that were on red lists that were really quite rare, and you know. It, but yeah, there's always something that there's there's always more to learn, you know. So, and I yeah, think that's and I, important to remember. Well, I, and also just picking up on the same train of thought that we that you've mentioned there that we touched on earlier, and you know, I've I've found the the greatest experts that I've met. Uh, well, I don't even really believe in experts, but you know, people that really know their field. It it does seem that there's always a bit. Of, they they end up seeming a bit like a bumbling idiot, <laughs> because because you know they they're not sure. They they know the complexity of it, and and you know like I went I went out with um, the friend uh, I mentioned earlier, John Acroyd, who's the national um, the botanical society uh, guy that is always checked with about the goosefoot family. And down at Dungeness, looking at the uh, the different orange uh, species down there, and there's always an element of doubt with John because he knows those species and their variability and the subspecies and all of this so well. He just doesn't walk up there and go, "Well, this is definitely that." He's going, "Well, you know, there are some characters here that suggest it might be," uh, you know. And to the uninformed eyes, is he doesn't know what he's talking about. You'd mm. think that 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 lack of certainty, as you said earlier. Yeah. Anyway. Um, no, I think that's very important, and and to, to that that reminds me of some occasions working with or or, or helping um, Gordon Hillman. So you know, exactly. We, well, he's another example. Yeah. He's, he's not ever kind of had that. He's always had that element of deferring to other people that might know better, and mm. yeah. But also, I remember him. I remember working with him once. Unfortunately, he's he's, he's not with us anymore. But no. I remember working with him once. Um, in Scotland, and he he was trying to get his head around all of these little um, little plants like calytrichies and little um, different chickweeds, and he had them all laid out, and you know, um, and he was saying, well, you know, this one's got like this aspect, and this one's got this aspect, and and yeah, it was just it was fascinating to watch because, and he was like. Well, either this is something that isn't in the book, or the book is wrong. You know? <laughs> it <was> kind of, <laughs> and it was just that you know, just all these little plants that, and he was still trying to get his head around, you know, the differences and the similarities, and whether or not the information he had was complete. And and yeah, yeah it was it was fascinating, and it and really nice to see that 
you know still pushing to with that that sort of inquisitiveness and curiosity yeah yeah, yeah. well i just think it's childlike isn't it that's that's yes. the beauty of it the, yeah. the, the the real you know to use that cold face metaphor again of 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 knowledge and discovery is is just that childlike inquisitiveness and 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 you know we we just think that the the proper grown-ups are these people that just know and are sure and and have that kind of firmness about everything you know mm. it, it turns out that the proper grown-ups people that really know are just a bunch of kids <laughs> also <laughs> still <laughs> yes yeah. yes indeed indeed and um speaking of learning more um i noticed relatively recently you've spent time in south america uh, collaborating yeah. with with some people on some wild food projects and also down in australia as well looking at yeah. some of the aboriginal um foodways and and so what what are your motivations for that is that just personal interest or are you other projects going on there well we yeah i mean i just, just like to be um somehow helping to what's the word um reinforce what they still have in in the case of the australian situation you know there is still traditional knowledge there in those communities although it's very fragile in terms of the extent to which it's being passed on to other generations and, and even to which it's being documented um because you know elders are dying all the time and they haven't necessarily managed to pass that knowledge on mm. um but um I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit disheartened about Australia, really, because um, there's a big movement around chefs using the wild ingredients there. I'm not sure to what extent that is meaning that the uh, Aboriginal people are, are somehow in a better position um, because chefs are using their, their their traditional ingredients. I mean, I've, I've, I've been out of touch for a while, so um, I did hear that there were some um, Aboriginal women who were beginning to start businesses around wild foods going into restaurants which sounds like a really really positive development because mm -hmm. it, it just seems to me there's a there's an opportunity there for the uh the sort of white western culture in australia to engage with the traditional knowledge in, in a way that isn't just taking you know that it that it's actually yeah. sitting at the feet and different you know i mean like you know the the, the idea that people should uh, in the remote communities should it should all definitely be literate and getting a university education well that's up to them if they do but 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 it, it just seems totally back to front to me it's so obvious that white society has destroyed the landscape or, or definitely just severely damaged it through through their apparently uh, literate culture you know mm -hmm. um and and that they're the ones that should be going to school. You know, they they should be sitting at the feet of the Aboriginal elders and and, and sort of saying, "How do we live in this place, please? Yes, uh, could you could you could you help us? You know, we seem to be, you know, reaping a lot of negative consequences to our opinion of knowing what to do. You know, and that's it. So they 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 came over there and thought that the Aboriginal people were children, and so the same situation is now. They, they they need to become more like those supposed children and and um, yeah I don't know I just have this idea and people say oh we're romanticising indigenous people well we're not you know no, no one's saying that any culture is is, is perfect or, or or whatever but um, the fact is that um, Aboriginal cultures manage to live in balance with with 
with their landscapes. You know, they used to live, they used to live in such a way that both they and the landscapes flourished. Or well, we don't seem to be able to do that. So we ought to be able to sit at the feet and and learn. So I don't know. Something along those lines is is what I would like to be able to do. Um, uh-huh. If uh, if I can find find the routes to to spending a bit more time overseas. Um, but but in Brazil it's slightly different. I just I have a friend out there that's got um, a, a, a restaurant in São Paulo. Um, his name is Cesar Costa. Um, and apologies, Cesar, if you're listening, I cannot remember how to say the name of your restaurant. But if you if you Google Chef Cesar Costa São Paulo, you'll find him. But he's done wonderful things to set up supply chains with organic producers in São Paulo State who previously were just sending it all to Europe, and he's now got a lot of that stuff staying in Brazil and being used in the city and and he's got composting schemes he's, he employs refugees and and a lot of amazing things and he's also using some wild stuff but what we do is we went out to some organic farms not to look at what they're growing but to look at the the, the weeds that are grown there and and so we had great fun discovering things like penny royal which is a protected species in england it's illegal to even touch it mm-hmm. and there it's growing in amongst all the plants it was so funny when i realized what it was mm-hmm. so he's he's uh, so and and um mugwort which nobody knew what that was is great herb mm-hmm. um that which says has now got on his menu there so just 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 that little feel like tying two two bits of string together there you know there's there's the there's the uh the farm that didn't know the weeds they got. There's Cesar's restaurant that didn't really know that the weeds were there and edible and, and how to use them and did a bit of work suggesting different recipes. So now lots of those things are, um, are being used. So that's that's a different kind of thing. Okay, so, so bringing things back a little bit closer to home, Miles, I was looking at your courses on your website, which if people don't know is forager.org.uk. Um, yeah, you've got a bunch of courses there, um, and they're quite, you know, they're quite specific. Some of them aren't they? They're not sort of come and learn to forage. They're they're quite. Um, I don't really want to use the word specialized, but you're looking at kind of quite um, focused. Focused. That's the, that's focused, the right yeah. word. Yes. After two hours of talking, my vocabulary is uh, diminished. Yeah, focused is a good way of putting it. Yeah. So, what what led you down that path, Miles? Well. I just wasn't sure that people were really getting what they could get out of a learning experience. Um, you know, with with a, a certain amount of um, you know practical engagement that I have, you you you, you want people to leave practically engaged themselves. And mm-hmm. and what I found was that people were leaving inspired and excited, but. The, uh, the sort of generic foraging walks that I was doing where people come out and learn, well, they're exposed to like 30 or 40 different plants. We take some back and, and cook it. That's the general form. Um, it's just too much of a scatter shot for, for really people to um, necessarily have, have stuff that they then put into practice in their, in their own environment um, in the days immediately following. And I think if you, if you don't, if you don't carry on, straight away you 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 probably lose confidence quite quickly you know i mean a few people the real the real real enthusiasts come and and they probably definitely go home having committed to memories to certain of the plants but it, you know i used to do things like get everybody to stick every plant in a book in a little book that we gave them so they'd have their own foraging herbarium thing 
But I'd have someone show me 10 years later, I've still got that herbarium. Oh, great. Which ones are these you pick? Oh, no, I didn't really feel confident enough. You know, mm. just, I thought, well, I'm not really serving people here. If we do something that's more focused, like we're going to do, like we just did one last week, cooking seaweeds. So we took people through and and even then you think, well, you know, we could go into more more depth here. But the thing is, we gave an overview of a particular kind of wild food and gave people some skills um, such as, you know, how to toast seaweeds, how to make a broth out of seaweeds, how to use some of them uh, as a substitute for pasta or noodles and, and just generally give people a, a, a confidence about one particular kind of wild food. So, you know, the other courses are, um, well, there's one that's more about plant identification, which will involve some, some cooking, but like we wanted to really get down into people knowing what the different kinds of leaves are, how the way things are arranged on a stem could help with plant identification, just get some real, um, uh, fundamental mm-hmm. tools um, under people's belt, and then then other ones. There's a specialist one on seeds in the in the autumn. Yeah, that's so many seeds out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited about doing that one. We've done bits of it in these generic foraging courses. I found that people really really enjoy like getting down to processing, for example, wild oats um, and making something with that um, together. But yeah, so it's it's a new it's a new departure. We we didn't do courses for a while. Um, and now we've got all these ones advertised, and and it's going to be interesting to see. I'll be a learning curve for us too to to see how people respond. But uh, but I'm expecting that people do just go away um, with with a knowledge base that that basically gets put into practice, mm. um, or is geared up to to enable that to happen. Well, yeah, yeah, that's what you want, isn't it? I mean, from everything that you've said in the conversation we've had so far, you want people to engage that way, not just have some academic knowledge of what they could do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and and it's just like if you have some solid skills, you can build on those skills. I'm sure you 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 kind of uh, attest to that with your bushcraft practice. You know, if someone mm-hmm. learns how to light a fire properly, well, they're then in a strong position to say, well, hey, I'm going to learn a bit of flint napping or or whatever. Yeah, well, even you know? within the scope of fire, you know, there's some basic ways of taking a flame to an established fire but then there's lots and lots of ways of making a small flame in the first place and so there's you once right. you've got some basic building blocks in place you can augment it and add different things okay. and again it goes back to it goes back to understanding the the natural materials it's like what what will where can you get materials that will accept a spark where can you get mm. bark fibers that you can buff up into something that you can put an ember into where you can blow it into flame how do you identify those species you know right. what fungi can you use to accept a, a spark how how should they be prepared what condition do they need to be in in the first place all of that type of stuff mm. again it, it, it f- at the fundamental heart of it is understanding the resources are available that, that are available and knowing how to identify them and knowing how to to process them and do yeah. it and do it in a way that's not damaging to to the environment either mm, mm, mm. yeah so it, yeah I, there's there's so much scope for for going in using that word that you used having more focus once you get the basic building blocks in place yeah yeah absolutely fantastic and are they all largely in your neck of the woods down kent way are they those yeah courses? they're all they're all based at our, our um premises where we are we've got a kitchen um that's kitted out with you know everything you need and and so most of them involve an excursion and then coming back to the kitchen to do some stuff uh the the um seaweed cooking ones that are entirely kitchen based right um 
So, uh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, there's lots for people to get their teeth stuck into there, definitely. So, yeah, and that's it, forager.org.uk forward slash courses if people would like to have a look. And I'll put links to everything that needs a link to it in the notes on the web page that's associated with this with this podcast as well so people can find all the links and some of the people we've talked about as well um and link to your book as well of course um, which everyone should own if they're interested in wild foods that's my my view so um go out and buy, go out and buy miles's book as well um so you've got the wild boxes you've got the courses um the book how else can people interact with you miles online at all i know you well, say pe- you're a, keep saying you're a technophobe but you think you've got an instagram account somewhere haven't you There's somebody i does. don't have anything to do with it but yeah <laughs> the, the, we've, i've got a team of of, of of people that are doing various different aspects and and yeah we i mean it's had nothing to do with it we 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 do kind of basically say let's just document what we're doing and yeah. say interesting things about wild plants but um i think the thing i'm most excited about is 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 our um podcast and um just very briefly as well the the name of the podcast is world wild and we've actually just incorporated a community interest company by the same name so um and the idea of the world wild project podcast community interest company is is to uh disseminate and and support um wild food knowledge um so the podcast we're just talking to people um around the world funnily enough we seem to have focused on the on the united states for now but our three first guests have all been um north american we've had sandal Katz, the fermentation guy samuel thayer um the um great forager and foraging author over there and and a guy called uh fred preventer who studied the behavior of grazing animals which has a lot of uh implications for understanding uh, the importance of wild food so yeah we're really excited about the podcast the same i know that you you put a lot of love into yours and it's just the same, really. Just just trying to have decent conversations with people that other people can listen in on, because we think that like the things that we're talking about probably uh, have an interest to um, a wider audience. So yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sure you'll have gained some new listeners today um, mm. uh, from this one, because people who like podcasts tend to like other podcasts that have stuff in them that they. Um, I'm amazed at the number of people that don't listen to podcasts. I do actually feel yeah. like we're still somehow at the beginnings. It feels like, yeah. you know, we're still early days with podcasts. Um, a lot of people are still turning on to just the fact of their existence, never mind starting to listen to them. But I know a lot of people who do listen to them enjoy listening to them at times when it would otherwise be dead time you know if they're driving picking the kids up from school um going walking the dog all of those sorts of things there are times when people can listen to stuff so there's definitely good scope for people getting more information and i think podcasts are a great way of doing it so i think they're a wonderful medium i you know we've 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 been doing a bit of video and stuff but i just feel so much more uh comfortable with the medium of, of just recording a conversation it just seems so much more of a just an actual thing that you're doing rather than a, an artificial. I, I always felt that about radio too. I did did a couple of interviews for Radio Four, and the difference between that and the tiny amount of telly that I've done, just chalk and cheese. You know, you're not pretending to do something. We were we were just having a chat, and it got recorded. Yes, that was it. Yes, yeah, like today, really. 
exactly yeah. yeah it's been good it's been good well thank you very much for your time miles it's been yeah, it's, been a it's, pleasure it's been a real yeah. pleasure for me i've thoroughly enjoyed that i mean I, I i we've never really properly connected before we've sort of you know skirted past each other on association of foragers social media and that, yeah. facebook page and stuff but yeah it's been really really nice to to have this chat miles and appreciate everything that you do and um really appreciated your book over the years and i look forward to more of your podcasts and maybe we have a round two at some point as well i'm sure there's a lot more we could have talked about as well but i think we'll um in the interests of <laughs> us having other things to do with our lives as well and businesses to run yeah um i better think go and do something else better now. go and do something else but that's been absolutely <laughs> fantastic miles thank you and right. um yeah look forward to catching up again in the future cheers great stuff thanks paul thanks for having me no yeah. worries no worries well, thanks again to Miles for such a fascinating conversation. Check out the page on my blog associated with this podcast. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast four zero. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 40. And there you'll find all the relevant links associated with our conversation. There's also an Amazon link to Miles's book, The Forager Handbook. Not only do you help Miles out by buying his book, of course, you also help support this podcast by buying through the Amazon link on my site as I gain a small commission from this at no extra cost to you. And of course, you gain a great book in the process. And if you're not already subscribed to the Paul Kirtley podcast on your favorite podcast app, please hit the subscribe button right now so you don't miss any of the forthcoming episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode and I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of the Paul Kirtley podcast where my guest will be Dave Canterbury of the Pathfinder School. Until then, take care and enjoy the outdoors. Mm -hmm.